Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. You guys, we are recording from inside of the Spotify studios, and it's just like a different setup than we're used to. So me and Claire are like looking at each other in the face. And usually we sit next to each other and kind of like glance in each other's direction. Normally we're looking at you. You guys are our primary lookers. Yeah, but right now we're like looking at each other and I'm just like, oh my God, what will it be like? Well, you have beautiful eyes. It's so nice to get a gander at them. I know. I had no idea yours were blue. I don't know if you guys saw. If you're not following us on Instagram, you should be following us on Instagram because that's where most of our merch announcements, our tour announcements, all of our announcements are there. But we are so freaking excited to have announced that we are adding Vancouver to the list of our shows. We are going to Vancouver February 15th. We are going to be in the JFL Vancouver Festival. We're so excited. If you live there, please, please, please get your tickets. I know a lot of you guys have been begging us to go to the West Coast of Canada, so we friggin' did it. (laughs) Yeah, I'm really excited to see Vancouver. I've actually heard great things about BC, and I cannot wait. Me too. I've actually been there. You've been to Vancouver? Yeah, when I did that camping trip across Canada, we went to Vancouver, and we got sushi, and I was, like, so freaked out by sushi at the time. And then I was like, well, we're in Vancouver. And so I tried it, and I was like, do I love sushi? The answer is yes. I can tell you from the future. Spoiler alert, you do. Spoiler alert, I literally do. And I, ever since that day, have been, like, dreaming of going back to Vancouver and, like, eating more sushi. Oh, my God. I can't wait. Also, we have brand new merch. Get it for Christmas. If you're hearing this a week later or something, you want to get somebody merch for Christmas and you're worried it's not going to arrive on time, just let us know and we will even do, like, a free cameo for you so you can be like, here's what I got you. We just want all of our worms decked out. We're so excited about the brand new merch. Our friend Adrian at Hello Adrian A-D-R-I-A-N-N-E. She designs everything we do. So we're so excited. We can't wait. And now I have a really true announcement. These what have been fake announcements. I mean, they're all real. They're all factual announcements, but I have, like, an actual announcement. What are you announcing? Okay. So when we did Patrick Stewart, we got a lot of flack for, like, not telling anybody <laughs> that he was our friend now. Oh, I thought this was going to be an announcement that I don't know, but I do know. Can I tell you there's not a lot about me that I have to say that you don't know? I know, but sometimes you say things and you'll be like, oh my God, this is something I'm going to tell you on the podcast. And I didn't know if you like didn't even warn me that you were going to tell me something. That would never happen. A lot of people give us flack for not announcing that Patrick Stewart was going to be on the podcast. I don't think they flacked. I think they said, what? I think they gawked. They balked. (laughs) I think they balked. Anyway. This week we have a situation. Yeah. I just want to give you full heads up. We are going to give our God-to-damn honest opinion about this book, and then we are going to ask the man himself about some situations that came arising. I have to say, something that shocked me about this book was how many women wanted to sleep with him. I thought he was like a laughing stock. I didn't realize he was like a dick stock. (laughs) I think I knew he was a dick stock. I just was shocked because he has more sex than I think any celebrity has ever had. Yeah. I think it's because he's so approachable. I think women are more likely to throw themselves out of the situation than at Leonardo DiCaprio because they assume Leonardo DiCaprio is fucking the hottest girl in the world. I think nobody is assuming that Mike's, the situation is fucking the hottest girl in the world. I've said it once and I'll say it a thousand times. The men that women try to fuck the most are the men that they think they're the only one yeah. that they like. That's why Pete Davidson is so popular because so many women are like, I think he might be hot. I think women love to be like, he feels psyched to have me. Timothy Chalamet, the only way to explain the Timothy Chalamet thing is the fact that like so many women were like, I'm the only one who will find him attractive. And so he might actually like me. We're getting very Patreon-y up top. This is very much like a Patreon episode. For the Patreon this week, we're going to like binge watch a ton of Jersey Shore and review the whole first season, I think. Subscribe there. The link is in the bio. I know this like really got away from us. Claire, if you were to write a memoir, how would you describe last week's chapter? It's hard because we just recorded an episode two days ago, and I'm trying to think what I've done since then, besides read Mike the Situations book. But you know what I'll say? What? Thank God for friendship. Oh. Yesterday, I was having one of those days where I barely left the house. I was very grumpy. I was grumpy. 
Um, <laughs> Mac wasn't coming home till 9 30, 10. And I was just like, if I don't talk to somebody, the one risk of working for yourself and like working remote is you can go a really long time without talking to anybody. Yes. And I am such an extrovert that that does not help me. I need to get out and socialize a bit just to get out of myself or otherwise I kind of spiral into an oblivion. You know, my friend Sophia, she was just getting back from Boston. Like, I know she was tired. She got straight off the mug of bus and I said, I need to have dinner with somebody. And I think she was like, I can tell that you like need this. Ashley, she showed up to sushi and it just turned my frown upside down. Okay. It's so cold right now. And it's not just cold outside for me. It's cold inside because I don't know how to turn on the heat. Sure. And when it's cold inside, it actually is impossible to leave your house. To leave your little blanket, you're like, I can't even eat. I'm under a duvet. And if I leave this duvet, I could die. But thank God I did because it really turned things around. So I just want to say, I know it's going to be a brutal winter. I know it's just the beginning of a horrible time. But we have to keep fighting for ourselves. As we go into these horrid months, don't forget to hang out with your friends because it'll perk you up. Yeah. My week is also a winter warning. Dude, winter is upon us and it is brutal. Okay, do you know what I'm going to try to do? And don't hold me to it just in case I don't. Like, this isn't a hill I'll die on. I really want to have, like, a healthy girl winter. Mm. Because I know we overuse ugliest girl in the world attack, but, like, I am in the pits. Like I, I think feel... you look so pretty right now. Okay, I have so many pimples in my face. And I know I'm about to get my period, but I also hurt my back this weekend just because my apartment was so cold that I was, like, constricting my body and, like, sitting and reading Barbara Streisand's 1,000-page book in such a way that when I got up, I was like, oh. And I was like, I haven't been working out enough. I have been, like, sitting weird and, like, not moving and, like, not walking. And I just have been not taking care of myself. My gel manicure is, like, peeling off and so I look like shit. I just feel like there have been a lot of little things that I haven't been prioritizing Especially like when my apartment was so cold. I wasn't washing my face at night because you I was just like. You can't be wet like, and cold. That's hell. I'm too cold. Now my heat is on, but it wasn't for a couple of days. And I like couldn't give bug a bath. I felt like dirty because I was like cuddling a dirty dog because I was like, well, I can't get her wet if my apartment is She'll cold. She'll turn into a bugsicle. She'll turn into a bugsicle. And that would be so irresponsible of me. You're a mother first. And so I was just like sitting and wallowing in like sadness and filth. And I like <laughs> need to turn it around. This winter is going to require all hands on deck, like drink a lot of water and do skincare. Yeah. I haven't had a sip of water since the wedding, and that's on God. Do you know what my goals are for the year for my, like, healthy girl winter? The, the goals aren't steep. They're not high level, but yeah. there's something. I want to drink water. I want to take walks, even if it's cold out, and not look at my phone as much and, like, try to read other books. Okay, I'm excited. Listen, whether or not I achieve my goals this winter is going to be a reality check. And who else has a reality check? Mike Sorrentino, The Situation, Making the Best of the Situation, How I Overcame Addiction, Loss, and Prison. There are so many words on this I page. cannot believe that he has two subtitles and then a prologue and an intro. He loves to set you up. He loves to lay the groundwork for a situation. He loves a nickname. And what is a subtitle if not a nickname for the title? And what is a sub-subtitle if not a nickname for the nickname? <laughs> prologue. And I think you guys need to hear this too. Forewarning. What you're about to read is both shocking and mind-blowing. You will likely be astonished by the many accounts told within. Sex, drugs, and reality stars, the stuff cameras and tabloids never showed you. In some cases, I can barely believe my own stories. I have a genuine question for you. Uh-huh. Were you astounded? Kind of, actually, yeah. I literally, yes. I actually was, too. I had a threesome every night for, like, two straight years, and that, to me, was genuinely shocking. <laughs> 
I was actually, like, shocked by the way he was, like, scoring drugs while filming a reality TV show. I mean, the amount of drugs, I was like, holy shit, you were, like, a capital D, capital A drug addict. (laughs) Yeah. This is not, like, a a CC, I took a lot of Adderall. This was, like, oh, you're a drug addict. Yeah. I was astounded at society in the way that I'm, like— I know that he was known for being fucking insane. And now I'm like, oh, yeah, he was on drugs. Why didn't we realize it? Of course he was on drugs. That's the only thing that makes sense. We've been talking a little bit about an article that Claire read part of. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, that's better than nothing, though. In today's economy, that's not nothing. Shrinkflation, man. (laughs) About, like, the ethics of reality television. We literally are obsessed with watching people act insane. And then like a decade later when they're like, oh, I was addicted to drugs and it was enabled by all of these mega corporations. It's just like, oh, duh. Yeah. Of course it was. Yeah, we discussed that Vanity Fair article about the Bravo unions on our Patreon. Again, if you guys want to hear us talk about articles, we will read them (laughs) for money. We're trying to read more articles. That's like a big thing that we're doing. I'm excited about it. Any day now. We've <laughs> we've been discussing it for like six weeks. Okay, so I was blown away. Here's the thing. is Something I really like is when they tell you what they wanted to do with this book because I think it gives you a good rubric for judging a memoir. And I'm like, what was your goal? Let's judge you that way. The Barbara Streisand episode, for example, I actually look back and I go, what she wanted was to tell you more about every project. And God bless her, she did. She did it. That's my goal for this book, to help as many people as possible by telling the story of Mike's situation that nobody knows. I wonder if this is helpful. I don't think it's not helpful. We've read enough books where people, like, glorify their addictions that I find are, like, distinctly not helpful, in my opinion, as not a drug addict. But, like, this one, I'd be like, if you read it, good. And if you don't read it, also fine. He does make drugs look bad. It is like one of those things where I go, oh, your life was bad. I would not have traded lives with you. Anyway, he says this quote that I love so much. If Shakespeare had been a reality star, he may have written this book. And I agree. Do you know what I loved in this page? If you take away half of what I put into it, consider yourself having come out ahead. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things about Mike, the situation is he really is like the Bible and then this book and then the recipe to my mom's lasagna. Those are the three greatest works of literature that's ever been put to paper. All (laughs) multi-layered. I remain brutally honest and accountable throughout its duration. You will hear the sordid details of many of my unpredictable and outlandish adventures. I hold nothing back. He was honest. Yeah. The introduction is December 24th, 2010. For those of you heathens, that's Christmas Eve, the night before our Lord and Savior was born. It was Christmas. Uh, He's rich, and that's awesome. And his brother, Mark, who is his business manager, says, Mike, we had a great year, but we still need to file a tax return. By his guesstimates, he had made about $5 million, but he literally had no ideas. Because one, he has hired his brother to handle his business. He also has a business manager. And two, he was super on drugs and just getting paid out by being handed, like, duffels of cash. Yes. Most of his money came from club appearance fees where he was paid in, like, duffels of cash up to, like, $30,000, $50,000 for an appearance. And then he had, like, endorsement deals. He had a line of, he says, ab cream. Like, he had all of these random business ventures. Like tchotchkes, hats, sunglasses. Plus the TV show itself. So he hired these people to handle it. And he's like, I didn't think I should have to worry about my business. Somebody else was on it. And I kind of agree with him. We'll get into this later. That being said, ultimately, all of it was my responsibility. At the end of the day, I have no one to blame but myself for what would transpire. But back then, as a green, naive rookie celebrity grappling with the excesses of new wealth and public adoration, the tax man was the farthest thing from my mind. Mark hesitated, then said, unless you want to just catch up with the IRS next year. Yeah, let's do that, I answered carelessly. We'll get him next year. Here's what I will say. 
I do think it is Mark's fault. If you hire somebody to handle the business end of your business, I do think they should know. That being said, okay, here's where I went back and forth. I'm like, one, Mike, the situation. I get that you had never made $5 million before, but surely you had heard of taxes. I think most Americans are deeply aware that every year you have to pay taxes. But it does seem that he had a business manager and he had a tax accountant. It is a confusing system. It is a confusing system. Things can get lost in translation. And I do think that, like, that is why you hire a tax accountant, right? So that they say, this has to get done by this date. And then if they say, or we can handle it later, why would you not assume that you could handle it later? And I say this very defensively because... Did it stress you out so bad? I literally, I, like, talked to Mac last night. I was like, who's doing our taxes? We're married now. We have to file jointly. He's like, I don't know. I'm like, well, we have to figure it out today because I'm not going to fucking jail. (laughs) Like, my dad does my taxes, and I'm, like, 99.99% sure he's, like, a very good tax accountant because that is his job. But, like, I guess I am, like, okay, if something did go wrong, I don't look at anything. I, like, gave him access to my bank account, and I was like, I hope my taxes get paid. Anyway, so then he has the second half of this introduction, which is something I've never seen before. It's so funny to be like, I have two great moments to start this book. Let's just do them both in the intro after the prologue. Yeah. So the second one is him at the Viacom headquarters. They had called an emergency meeting with the cast of Jersey Shore after season one. They don't have their managers. They don't have their team. It's just them. And they're handed contracts with no raise from the year before. And everybody's looking at each other. Nobody knows what to say. They're all like kind of young, dumb idiots. No offense. But they know that something is up. And he's the first guy to say, nope, I'm not signing this without my lawyer. And they go, well, if you don't sign it, we might replace you. He goes, no, you fucking won't. I snickered, dropping the contract on the table. Yeah. So the two moments he wants to set up is one, he was very rich and famous and was not paying attention to his own business. And two, he was paying enough attention to his own business to know he was worth a lot of money. That's right. The situation was irreplaceable, and I knew it. So did they. So yeah, good luck. The truth is, I always knew that I was going to be a big deal. I had simply taken a circuitous path to get there. He sounds like an asshole, but he was irreplaceable. Like, who the fuck else could have done that? No, he was 100% right. The idea that they were going to not pay. When you hear the deal he ended up getting, I think he ends up getting like $200,000 an episode. A raise from they had initially, I think, been getting $500 an episode. Plus, they got back-end deals. Plus, they got parts of the merch. I mean, it actually was fucking preposterous that they thought they wouldn't have to give these people a raise. And then he ultimately gets bonuses for ratings and, like, a three-year contract. It was crazy. So chapter one does this interesting thing where it starts with an interview with his mother, just, like, speaking directly to the reader. I wonder why they did that. I'm going to ask him. So basically, when she gave birth to him, it was a tricky birth. And then she named him Michael. And in the craziest thing I've ever heard, the nurse was like, why would you name him Michael? That's going to make him crazy. And I was like, the name Michael is pretty much a third of the men in America. So I guess actually everyone knows a crazy Michael, but I feel like everyone also knows a normal Michael. I think that this set me up to think that he was only going to write like 100 pages of this book. But there are only like four inserts from people in his life. So anyway, he was a very good baby. And then that all changed sometime in middle school. My tranquil and shy boy became outgoing, assertive, and mischievous. He was always into something, though never anything too malicious. He was a prankster who was popular and extroverted with lots of friends. He loves pranks. He's always an athlete. I was a natural athlete, and sports always came easy, but he never had the discipline, which, you know, is the recipe for a man to not be a professional athlete. Okay, I guess it's because I went to a high school where everyone was required to play two sports anyway, but the idea that you played ninth grade football to me means literally nothing. If you are up against people who might not have finished puberty yet, I do not care how good you were. Clara? Yeah? No man who isn't a professional athlete couldn't be. (laughs) I grew up in a stereotypical Italian family, a shining example of middle-class American dream. He also goes on a little tangent about, like, whether or not his family was in the mafia. 
My pops, Frank Sr., worked as an electrical engineer, and I can neither confirm nor deny whether he may or may not have had some ahem, shall we say, ties to a well-dramatized and maybe glamorized criminal organization known for its members wearing shiny suits and possessing last names generally ending in a vowel. That was pretty typical for Italian neighborhoods in Staten Island in the 80s. And then they left Staten Island and moved to Jersey, and he's like, was it because of the mafia? Nobody knows. Anyway. So he feels like the black sheep of his family. He has two older brothers. It goes Frank, Mark, and then his little sister. I don't know what her name is. Melissa. She almost never comes up. Is that fair to say? Yeah, she's just kind of there. So he felt like the black sheep of the family. Mark got straight A's. Frank was more of a mama's boy. And then Melissa could do no wrong as the princess of the family. Then there was me. And we'll just blow through his school years. It's kind of exactly what you would think. He was getting in trouble. He says he got bad grades, but not because he wasn't smart, because he didn't try. He was always doing pranks. He's like, I got into a lot of trouble, but I was a good kid. And the examples are like, I threw a big party. When my parents took one vacation the whole time I ever knew them, it was for a weekend. And I promised them I wouldn't, and then I did. And would you believe it? Someone got hit by a car. Anyway, nothing bad. And I'm like, I don't know. Say that to the kid I mean, he's hit. like, I would do pranks all the time. I, like, brought chickens into the school, but I arranged it so no one knew it was me. But then they knew it was me. And he's like, and then for my graduation, I did a cartwheel across the stage, and I accidentally kicked the principal right in her face. But nothing bad. I didn't do anything to hurt anybody. <laughs> If you told me to drive carefully, I would do donuts in the parking lot. In fact, right after I got my license, I smoked angel dust on the way to homecoming. You guys know how mischievous kids are. He's like, it's just an aversion to authority. He does this thing where, like, everything he does is, like, a problem with authority, where he's like, I wouldn't have done PCP if someone hadn't said, don't do PCP. I don't even think they said that. I think it's like, drive safe. And he's like, oh, 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 big mistake, buddy. Framing it as an aversion to authority is so yeah. interesting to me because it's like, if no one had said, you must drive safe, you wouldn't have been like, oh, then I won't do PCP. Again, nothing malevolent. I wasn't a bully. I didn't hurt anyone. All things considered, I managed to make it through high school relatively unscathed. I guess my question, and I'm not saying he's wrong, but I know he would say he didn't hurt anyone. And I know his ma would say he didn't hurt anyone. I wonder if anyone would come forward and say I was hurt by Mike Sorrentino. Maybe the principal who got kicked in the face. I would say to this day, except for his wife, he has absolutely no consideration of how his actions will affect anybody else. He's deeply inconsiderate to the point of endangerment. Right. Like, he was a prankster, and he wasn't bullying anyone. Like, the goal of his prank was to get a laugh, not to hurt someone. But, like, who was the butt of the prank? Yeah. And also, if somebody else got in trouble, then oh well. Yeah. So he gets out of high school, and he has no idea what he's going to do with his life. He has no direction. All he wants is to be a star. He has a sense that he's going to be very famous one day. Everyone in town calls him Mikey Abs because he has, like, freak show abs. Everybody loved it. Girls, guys, his friends, they would go to the club and they'd say, like, lift your shirt up. I'd laugh, lift up my shirt, and everybody would go nuts. Girls want to touch them, take pictures with them. Guys couldn't believe what they were seeing. They were just amazed to be next to such a specimen. But how could I turn that into a paying job? So then he becomes a stripper, which is a paying job where everyone loves a specimen. He says at this point he already knew about painkillers because he remembers the first time he went on stage, he asked if anybody had a Vicodin or a Percocet, and they were like, what? And he was like, what do you mean, what? You guys don't know about the good stuff? Yeah. But they were doing coke a lot, but no one did painkillers, really. It was an ideal situation, at least at first, but soon I became jaded. I'm jaded. <laughs> That's a Patreon shout-out. And I started to think differently about the opposite sex. Mentally, I put myself in the position of the groom who was at home thinking his fiancé was out for a ladies' night, and meanwhile, there's a DHIM. Okay, what so does DHIM mean, Ashley? I think it means dick in her mouth. I Can I tell you something? I read that six times last night and could not put together anything, and you sound right. So then he goes, oh, my God, can you imagine? The moral dilemma was one of the reasons why I hung up my stripper boots. And I literally went, really? And then on the next page, she tells the story about how he would give lap dances on birthdays. And one day he gets home and his mom starts beating the shit out of him. 
And it turns out her friend had gotten a lap dance from him and was horrified. So that's why he actually quit. It's no big deal. You mess up. You earn a light beating from your parents. I know that some readers are going to say, but it's all good. It comes with the territory. Though I have to admit, as a result of those punishments during my adolescence, I now suffer from a rare psychological condition known as having respect for others. I would like you, dear reader, to ask yourself, when does he start exhibiting respect for others? Yeah. Do you think him getting beat as a child was worth it? Another thing that I want to say about the moral aspect of stripping, it is very interesting to me that he thinks the problem with being a stripper is that, like, these girls have boyfriends. Yeah, like, I can't facilitate cheating on a man. Yeah. Which is interesting. So he says he quits the job. After my mother's inadvertent discovery of my new career, morals and embarrassment took over. So what does he do next? What's, like, the most moral job you could have? He becomes a drug dealer. So he goes to community college and starts dealing drugs on the side. At community college, he meets Lauren Elizabeth Pesci. My future wife, best friend, mother of my children, and better half. I have to say, yeah, he fucking loves his wife. He loves his he wife. He loved her then. He loves her now. One thing I will not say a bad word about is his love for his wife because I think he would kill me. <laughs> he loves his wife, and I like that about him. So he met her. They sit next to each other first day. He beats out some guy to date her, and they end up dating for quite some time. All he's doing really is going to class to meet up with his girlfriend. He's barely studying. He's selling drugs, and then he's GTLing. I've always taken pride in my appearance and practiced self-care and self-love religiously ever since I can remember. So he's partying. He's dealing drugs. The money is great. His wife talks about meeting him, and she says he was so cute. He was clean-cut, fit, put together. And then she says he's not cocky. Cocky is the last word I would ever use to describe Mike. Which is very interesting because, wait, I want to go back to a line in the intro that was, like, my introduction to who wrote this book. Before all that, as a handsome young Italian-American with a cocksure smile and a quick mouth, I was another carefree kid with big hopes and dreams. Who told him that word? There's a lot of, like, phrases that I'm like, who said that to you? The reason I can tell that this was, like, a very collaborative book is because although it all feels like words I can't believe he came up with, they all believe in words he would be excited to learn and want to use. If you say, a young lad with a cocksure smile, he'd be like, yes, call me that. Absolutely. (laughs) No, he definitely would say a sentence and then his writer would like put it back out. I almost feel like it was like a tie-dye experiment. Yeah. When I was 19, my parents went through a divorce. I had to maintain a certain lifestyle expectation that I could no longer rely on them for. Selling weed to my buddies seemed almost too easy not to do. But like everything in life, I took it to the extreme. And soon I was moving pounds of weed and ounces of cocaine every week. I am obsessed. This has to be the furthest reach on the but my parents got divorced excuse. To be like, I was 19 years old in college. What was I supposed to do for money? I had to. My parents were divorced. I'm like, you were 19 years old. Get a job. Get a fucking job. I have a lot of questions about his work history and experience. I don't believe he's ever had a job where he went to that job in the morning and went home at night thinking, this is what I need to survive. No. But he talks constantly about how the deck was stacked against him. And I'm like, you seem to like have been unemployed and then a reality star and then unemployed and then a reality star. Yeah. Also for the deck to be stacked against you and for you to be like 19 years old being like, I'm 19 years old and my parents are getting divorced. Who's going to pay my bills? Yeah. Okay. So things with Lauren are going great. He's a drug dealer. They have money. They're living together. And then he starts an affair. He was making tons of money. He was spending thousands of dollars every night. Every night they would go to a gargantuan Red Lobster dinner hit the strip club and make it rain before heading to a lounge for VIP service. After that, we'd usually post up at a hotel suite to celebrate further with strippers or other girls we met at the club. I took care of the squad, paying for everything, thousands of dollars a night, which was cool with me. Easy come, easy go. He was buying his girlfriend Lauren designer clothes. At one point, she moves in with him. It sounds like she doesn't have to work. He's completely taking care of her. Isn't it so funny that five pages ago, he's like, I couldn't be a stripper. It was so disrespectful to these men in relationships. Anyway, 
As soon as I had money as a man in a relationship, I started spending it on strippers. Can you imagine bowling out at Red Lobster every night? <laughs> it's too many biscuits. I do think that, like, even weekly, it's something that I don't know that I could maintain. And, like, not financially, but, like, emotionally. <laughs> <laughs> something about calling a meal gargantuan. I'm like, okay, I can sense the right-click thesaurus on every single sentence. Imagine if you reverted this whole book and it was like, we ate big lobsters at Red Lobster. <laughs> So he's selling drugs. At some point, my brother Mark got a call from a cop he knew. The cop told him that I was on a list of known drug dealers and there was a task force coming to get me. When I learned that, I decided to cool it for a little. I love the cops. Give them more money so that they can write lists of people that they tip off so that they can cool it so that they can go back to the drawing board. $400 million. Shut down the libraries. So then Lauren's like, listen, I kind of knew what he was doing, but not really. I just thought he was selling weed to his friends. It wasn't a big deal. You knew. She goes, his whole life, his family had basically given him everything. And when I met him, his parents were going through a messy divorce. All their kids were in adulthood, and their parents were like, you know what? Figure your life out. Not that that's an excuse, but he didn't have a career path or certain life skills to fall back on. And I think there was a certain lifestyle and status he wanted to maintain, so that's how he could do it. And then he's like, listen, Lauren had no idea what was going on, but anyway... She would come with me sometimes to cop in Brooklyn, and then I would have her count the stacks of $10,000 and put it in my safe. He was buying, like, cars in cash. He was, like, driving around in a Mercedes in cash. Yeah. Okay, so then he says he started an affair, and he does a good job with this where you're like, who is his affair with? I'm like, that's crazy. You love her so much. One that would last years and eventually tear us apart. One that would have such a deep, dark impact on my life that those I loved are still affected by it today. Like most trysts, it started innocently at first, flirting. I'd been dabbling for years with few repercussions but the relationship had grown. It went from hanging out every once in a while to every day. I became dependent on it. And I was like, who is this slut? It's opiates. Ugh. So he says he never really liked uppers. He would get so paranoid it was crazy. And then he starts taking opioids, and he's like, oh, I love them. He starts with Percocets, and then he gets into something called Roxaset, which I had never even heard, which is like doubling. It's like more Percocet. It made me feel great. I loved everything about it. I developed some type of tolerance from experimenting with opiates for a few years, but I never felt anything like this. And he gave it to Lauren, who was five foot and 90 pounds. She did not like it. And he's like, weird. Sourcing those designer heavy-duty prescription pain pills became a full-time job. I don't think I was fully hooked at this point, but it was certainly an itch I needed to scratch. Most of my focus shifted to that endeavor of getting more drugs. Can you imagine being like, I don't think I was really an addict. I did consider copying drugs a full-time job. <laughs> So he gets most of his drugs through pill mills, which are, like, shitty doctors who set up to just, like, have fake appointments. And then he finds some woman that'll give him anything he wants. They were getting 180 Roxas sets, 120 Oxys, and Xanax to sleep. That's when my habit began to impact my life. Without realizing it, I was fully and totally dependent. This was the beginning of an end that would take years to reach. Then they get a box of stolen prescription pads. So then he starts being able to write himself whatever prescription he wanted. He would sell a bunch. He was, like, very entrenched. And then there ends up being, like, a sting. a sting operation. So him and his cousin go to cash their own prescription. And he goes to get a slice of pizza while his cousin is still waiting for the drugs. And the cops swarm the mini mall they're at. They arrest the cousin. The cousin's going, that's my cousin. That's my cousin. And Mike's going, I've never seen that guy in my life. I'm just eating fucking pizza. And they leave him. Also, a cop, like, comes in and looks at him and then is like, never mind. He has gotten off a lot. There are a lot of, like, very intense run-ins. Where he, like, is doing really illegal shit. And then later in the book, he'll be like, this wasn't what I deserved. His story is very much the deck was stacked against me. I came out against all odds. Everything was set up for me to fail, and I still won. I overcame. And I do think what he went through, like, he went through a serious addiction, and my heart goes out to him. And I, like, really respect the amount of effort and work he's put in to get sober. And he's, like, very much an active part of the community. 
I mean, he was at a rock bottom, but there is this sense of, you don't understand though, I got addicted to pills because my parents went through a divorce and they wouldn't keep paying me to play Xbox all day. But I also feel like later when he's talking about getting sentenced for tax evasion and he keeps on being like, I had no priors, I had no priors. And it's like, this is what's so fucked about our legal system. It's because like, yeah, you had no priors, but you like should have. Yeah. Whereas like there are other people who aren't white who get arrested more for less shit who then would have a fuck ton of priors. I mean, he talks about he would cop once a week with like so much coke and weed on him. And police would pull him over and then let him go. One time he got pulled over for having weed in the car. The amount of times that he was just like flagrantly speeding with tons of drugs. He has no sense of like the people who are buying these drugs. And I'm not saying people should go to jail. but No, I'm but he has no you... sense of the consequences of his actions according to others. And if you're going to stand steadfast in this like I shouldn't have received a heavy sentence because I had no priors. I do want to be like that is not a good argument to me because you priorly had broken the law a lot. So his cousin gets arrested. He burns the prescription pad. He gets out of it. He goes back to Lauren, tells her what happens. They're both really shaken up. And he decides, like, the jig is up. Within a week, all my stuff was in storage. Lauren and I broke up, sharing a teary-eyed, bittersweet goodbye while I boarded a plane to Florida. I was going to rehab for the first time. So he goes to rehab, and he has to get sober. Withdrawal from opioids, as we know, is horrific. Horrible, yeah. The only positive was that when Lauren and I broke up before I left— it was on good terms. Our separation wasn't because we didn't love each other. It was because my life had become unmanageable. I was physically sick all the time. So he goes to rehab. He gets clean. He does 30 days. And he says, I was young. I was uneducated. And I figured these guys are going to fix me. I didn't understand the immense amount of work it takes to truly get and stay sober. Sure, I was going through the motions. I went to the sessions I shared during group. But I didn't take it as seriously as I should have. I was youthful. I was resilient. And I wasn't ready to stop partying. So as soon as he gets out of rehab, he, like, goes back to drinking. He does that thing where he's like, oh, my problem is opiate, not alcohol. And he does talk about, look at it this way. For however long you've been in active addiction, you've been high, in a fog. Those painkillers desensitized you, prevented you from feeling life, from feeling your raw emotions. Once you detox, as you get back to your baseline, all those buried emotions rush back to the surface. A lot of people don't understand what's happening when those feelings come barreling back. I know that I didn't the first go. The anxiety and depression hit you all at once, and it really sucks. He's dry, but he's not necessarily sober. Yeah. He goes back. He has, it seems like, OCD, like an addictive personality. And so he's like, oh, if I can't do opioids, I'll do push-ups. And so he gets, like, shredded as all fuck. He's living with his dad in Florida, and he does start dealing drugs again. He's not doing the drugs, but he's dealing them. And then his dad is like, you can't be dealing drugs from my house if I'm not getting a cut. <laughs> yeah, like, he finds the drugs one time when Mike is out, and Mike is like, I need those drugs back. I, like, bought them on spec. I have to pay back the dealers. And he goes, well, you can buy them back from me. Yeah, or if you're going to sell it, I get a cut. It's very odd. And then finally, he just is like, you have to get out of here. Mike is working part-time as a waiter. It seems like he's getting fired a lot. And his dad wants him to join the military and gives him, like, two weeks. But I knew even then that I was a star. People keep telling him it's not going to work. He says, I'm only 25 years old. Their doubt fertilized my resolve. So he goes back to New York or New Jersey and he starts trying to get a job as like an underwear model. But he's like, it doesn't go that well because everyone wants to have sex with me. He says he's too shredded that people see his comp card and just assume he's airbrushed. And that's why he doesn't get any gigs. He gets hired by like shitty agencies, but he can't book any jobs. Yeah. And he's like, the problem was I was too good looking. But then there was a casting call for like a Guido and Guidette competition. At Atlantic City. Which eventually becomes a casting for the Jersey Shore. So he goes to this casting, and he's like, everyone there was so hot, but not as hot as me. So it was awesome. Anthony Beltempo, the Jersey Shore co-creator, says they had this idea for Guidos. Basically, they're like, we knew them from growing up in Jersey. He goes, they're so outrageous, yet so endearing at the same time. That's not a common mix, but it's a very interesting one. 
So they had this idea to like have a competition, a Guido competition. And they go and they say Mike really was one of the first people that they gravitated toward. He's like, he had the look. He had the personality. He came alive on camera. They had this little questionnaire. What's more important? Your white teeth, your hard hair, your abs. And he's like, he answered all the questions correctly. He also hired originally Mike Sorrentino's best friend, Joey Fist Pumps, real name Joey DeSalvo. But Joey Fist Pumps rejected the offer because he was offered a union job in construction. And then eventually tried to come back. But they were like, OK, well, the show's already kind of like going. They are, like, obsessed with him at first. They also love that he already has a nickname. I guess one time he went to a club and he lifted up his shirt. And a woman goes, oh, my God, that's a situation. Because he would go by Mikey Abs, But then they were like, that's a lot. And he was like, what about the situation? And they were like, trademark that. <laughs> so they hire him and Joey Fist Pumps to do a sizzle reel, which they are going to shop around. So they, like, follow them around with a camera on the Jersey Shore. And they cut together what they think the show could be. And they sell the show basically off of Mike. The show had to work out. The situation was running out of options. I'd recently completed rehab. I was off pills and no longer drug dealing, which was great, but that also meant I had no income. I wasn't doing the modeling anymore because, honestly, the photographers were just trying to bang me every time I went to the casting call. I'd retired from stripping. I had no interest in going back to school. I didn't want to join the military. I had no other career prospects on the horizon, no backup plan. I was the backup plan. At the same time, all I had to my name was $7 and a six-pack. But he also claims he had tunnel vision. So one of the things with this book is he's like, I made it because I believed in myself and I decided I was going to make it. And I guess like it is true. He made it. But I am like, I don't know if this exact show hadn't come along, what would it have been? Yeah. I mean, I think he might have just like died. I don't know. The producer has like an aside where he talks about meeting Mike the situation and like what that sizzle reel looked like. And he's like, this just is such a funny line. Mike was a good sport about it all and natural. He was very easy to work with and he kept dropping these lines that were gold. I remember at one point that weekend when we were filming him driving, he had one hand on the steering wheel and he just turned casually towards the camera out of the blue with absolutely no context. He eloquently stated, I mean, what are you going to do when a guy takes off his shirt and he pretty much looks like Rambo? I mean, it's a question we should all be asking ourselves. What would you do? <laughs> So he's like, the show must work out. Meanwhile, his mom goes, you're wasting your time. This path you're on is going nowhere. You got to get a job. We all know you have amazing abs, but there are millions of people with amazing abs. I didn't agree with that. <laughs> I possessed the belief that I was one of a kind and destined for greatness. I remained resolute in my path. That belief in myself was easy to embrace. I knew what we had on film. I saw the character that I had portrayed while under the camera's hot lights when filming the sizzle reel for VH1. I was a natural. Sometimes when people are on camera, they shrink. They depict a side of themselves that is not flattering. That wasn't me. I was like a plant under the sun rising to the light. Does he believe that the version of himself he portrayed was flattering? Anyway, him and Lauren are thinking about getting back together. She's doing well. She's working for Ferragamo. She's interning. She went to fashion school. And she's like, we can get back together, but, like, you can't be on this reality show. And he says, I didn't have to make any decisions right away. The thing was, not a whole lot of progress had been made since that weekend of filming almost a year earlier with Anthony Beltempo. And so I'm going, a year early? What did you like, do for a year? For and then he year? goes, he tells me immediately, he goes, I remained broke and unemployed that year while couch surfing, just waiting for word that the show had been picked up and my dreams had come true. So he finally finds out. I guess his family is just so happy for him that his sister's like... I'll buy you new clothes. And his brother's like, I'll help. You know what I mean? Like, they're all like. Yeah. And he and Lauren do not get back together. So he talks about arriving to the show. They kept them, like, sequestered so that they didn't meet until they were on camera. After all the work I had put into this, I was finally getting my shot. I had a hard time believing that it was even happening, but I was ultra confident that I was going to be the breakout star. He says this a few times. Like, for the last year, I'd been putting so much work into getting this show made. I want to know exactly what that means. I'm going to ask him about that because I do think men, I guess all famous people, honestly, have this like odd thing where they cannot separate like, yearning from working. 
And I am like, what was the work though? Mm-hmm. I didn't tell the others, but in my brain, I was like, this thing was put together by me. I definitely felt a sense of ownership for the show. And I was going to do everything I could to make sure it was a hit. And I was front and center. I guess, and maybe he was right. He was like the first one cast. And he says they claim that they cast everybody else around his personality. I do believe, I guess, that they cast a show being like, we want to do a Guido show. And then they met Mike the Situation. And they were like, oh, it could be like the Hills type show about the Jersey Shore. And then he goes through each of the other characters. I'm sure you guys know. I don't need to tell you. I actually think he does a great job with how much of the Jersey Shore is in this book in terms of, I think we see a lot of reality stars be like, and then my famous moment, I'm going to walk you play by play through with this scene. And it's so boring because either you've seen it and you know, or you haven't seen it and you don't really need somebody to tell you about it. But I think he does a good job being like, here's the impact Jersey Shore had in my life. And here is like things you might not know about that impact Jersey Shore. But he's never just like giving you a play by play, except for when he banged his head against the wall. That is funny. And we will get to it. Yeah. So he films this thing. And then I think another year goes by before it airs. Yeah, so he walks away from it being like, that was gold. This is the greatest thing that's ever happened. I know that what we created there was fucking magic. Though no one had seen so much as a single frame yet, I already felt like the cock of the walk. In my head, I was a superstar. The problem was, until the damn show was on TV, the only person who knew it was me. Can I say, he was fucking right. Yeah. He talks about how much everyone fought that summer. He's like, I don't know, we were already, like, cocky assholes, and then we would walk into a club with cameras and... It was always just a competition for attention. And so people would just like come to them like a moth to a flame looking for a fight. They also were hooking up with girls constantly. In some cases, the cameras would come in handy. We always had instant replay available if needed. If there was ever a scenario where someone wanted to say that they were encouraged to do something maybe they didn't want to do, production could always go to the tape. And some girls did want to play games. So it was good to know that there was always someone or something watching. Yeesh. What does that mean? Even if that is an experience you've had, it's not one I like to hear advertised. There's something very sus about being like, oh, you didn't want to have sex with me? Explain it to the camera footage. I'm like, oh, oh, I don't know. Anyway, he talks about he was the one who came up with the concept of Sunday night dinner. And he's like, I knew America would relate to the idea of sitting down over a good family meal. And I do think he was right. Like, there was something so endearing about the fact that they would all sit down to, like, a wholesome family meal. And I didn't watch a lot of Jersey Shore growing up, but I do remember feeling so frustrated by the people who obviously did not contribute. Yeah. And so did he. Yeah. He also felt that frustration. If you're not contributing, you should do dishes. Their home after the show is shot. He knows it's amazing, but he's like, what is going to happen with it? Can I say, he has a quality that we need to work on. He says, my mentality was that if I acted as if the show was already a hit, I could make it so. I stayed steadfast that this unwavering belief in myself would pay off in superstardom. Oh, my God. We still are like, I hope we can have a job someday making a podcast. <laughs> it's like, it's cockiness. You got to be a bit You got to be cocksure. Because most people don't know. Because we're fast talking, but we're not cocksure. <laughs> That's so fucking true. Also, neither of us are Italian-American. I was raised amongst them. So he doesn't know if the show is ever going to air. And so his family is like, you literally uh, have to get. My eighth grade boyfriend was a Guido. I believe you. He used to say my name with three syllables. Calera. Claire. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it was like more notes. <laughs> You'd be like, Claire. <laughs> okay. So he doesn't know if the show is ever going to air. And his family is like, you have to get a motherfucking job. Because at this point, he's been unemployed for like over a year, I think. And then he was like, there's going to be a teaser for it on the MTV award show. And he throws this big party at his parents' house. And the teaser didn't pop up. Well, the teaser did pop up. But the teaser was just like, there's going to be a show about the Jersey Shore. But like, it is not interesting. Anyway, and then the show debuts December 3rd. He has another party for it, and nobody with him, like, kind of knows what to say. I think his family, like, watches the show, and they're like, oh, that's how you want to portray yourself? And everybody's like, that doesn't seem good. But sure enough, it was, like, one of the highest-rated shows of all time. Yeah, but his family is like, you have to get a job. So he gets a job as a laborer. Like, his dad gets him a great union gig, 
And then he would, like, hide in the corner and sleep the whole time. And they were like, dude, what the fuck? He's kind of a rat. I don't want to be rude, but I don't think you should just be like, yeah, if your dad's in the union, if your dad is in the mafia, you could just get a fake job for a union and not work. And I'm like, don't tell people that, dude. Have some fucking respect. There's, I'm like, like no worried of... that if you call him a rat, he'll murder you. I do think for his own good, he should learn some respect for the code. Well, he got beat as a kid, so he has respect. <laughs> <laughs> so the show blows up. The show is the biggest thing that's ever happened to the world. And that is true, I think. When the ratings come in, the risk of betting on myself was immediately substantiated and validated. We had a juggernaut. People were watching millions of them. So spring 2010, Miami Beach, Florida. They were on to me. I knew it. So this is actually one of the craziest stories. Like when I say I was astounded by this book. So this is a story about how season two, he comes back. And this story specifically is about how he was so addicted to pills at this time. The thing is, when they're on camera, they're being filmed 24 hours a day, constantly mic'd up under total supervision. They can't have much contact with the outside world. But basically, the story is he was like deep into his addiction at this point. He's being watched 24-7, but he had run out of pills in the middle of filming. And he figured out a way to get them. He had figured out that his tanning salon owner was also a user. So they, like, without words, quietly somehow figured out a method to get him new pills every time he came into tan, which was daily. Yeah. Okay. I have a question. Yeah. A suspicion. Mm. He talks a lot about having these, like, completely wordless interactions. I, like, want him to walk me through them. Yeah. And I do wonder if when you are high out of your fucking mind. You think you're being subtle. It's wordless. But actually, production is like, I mean, how many times have we seen production, managers, the entourage of a musician, like they do enable drug dealing because we've watched them write it out. As long as they keep making the thing that's making us money, then it's fine. If they're still doing the thing that is earning us money, then we're not going to like throw a wrench in the system. And so I wonder how wordless his interactions were. And he thought he was being subtle because no one stepped in, but no one stepped in because they thought, well, he's still making the show the way we want him to. Yeah. Well, whatever the situation, (laughs) he one day is on his way to the tanning salon. That's how he starts every day. Every day. The production's like, we're actually going to a different tanning salon today. And immediately he's like, okay, why? They're on to me. Why are we suddenly going somewhere new? So he decides to start driving and the producer gets in the passenger seat. He's got a couple people in the back and he's Cast members. Yeah. Snooky. Jenny. You know what I mean? It's not like PAs in the back. No, he had like millions of dollars worth of human beings in the back. Yeah. And he starts driving and he's panicking because they're like, you can't go to your old salon. And he's like, they're onto me, they're onto me. So he does this thing where he's like, well, I'm driving. And he drives past the old salon. And then he's like, if I stop and get out and run. Also, he says, oh, I have a stomach ache. And they're like, well, you can use the bathroom at the new salon. He's like, no, no, no. He's like, but if I stop and run, they're going to be able to follow me in. So he comes up with the only answer, which is, if he jumps out of the car while it's still moving, they're going to be too distracted by the fact that the car is driverless and on the loose to, like, come get him right away. So he does it. I'm like, well, no way he would do that. He keeps the car in drive, opens the door, and, like, rolls out and sprints for the tanning salon, runs in, grabs the pills, goes to the bathroom, pops them all, puts the rest in his jockstrap, calls his lawyer, comes out and says, I don't know what you're talking about. I had to use the bathroom, but feel free to talk to my lawyer if you want. There wasn't really anything anyone could do aside from stare at me in disgust. How had it come to this? Like Hemingway once said about going bankrupt, the answer was slowly then all at once. I did not know that that was about Hemingway going bankrupt. I thought people said that about falling asleep. I thought they said that about falling in love. I guess uh, the situation's read more Hemingway than me. Okay, so he talks about his acceleration to like superstardom. He was just a guy. He remains probably one of the most famous people in the world. Actually! I don't know that I would... He doesn't even have that many millions on Instagram. 
I don't mean in terms of like active star power. I mean in like name recognition. Yeah. No, he's like a cultural icon. You're right. He was like a moment in time that is infamous. Like, I don't think that he has influence, has influence. But like, if you think about like who you could say to like almost any person across the board that they would know who it is. I think if I told my like uncle that I was going to see Olivia Rodrigo, he would be like, what does she do? And if I told him that I interviewed Mike the situation, he'd be like, oh, my God. Yeah. I think he's more famous than Julia Fox and Patrick Stewart. But like markedly less successful. Yes. Ever wish there was more than 24 hours in a day? Because same. Luckily, Chomps is the perfect on-the-go snack that makes 24 hours feel like enough hours in the day. I'm going to be honest, there's very few things that me and Mac both like to eat, and one of the few snacks that we can agree on is Chomps. I'm obsessed with just getting some quick and easy protein in between meals. I'm a snacker. I'm somebody who's going to sit and eat crackers all day long because it never satisfies me. And then I have one Chomps, and I'm like, oh, what my body needed was protein. Chomps makes snacking simple. Their tasty meat sticks are packed with mouth-watering flavor and only the best real ingredients. Each delicious Chomps meat stick has the protein your body needs, over 9 grams per stick, without any unhealthy additives and zero sugar. They're low-carb, keto-friendly, allergy-friendly, and don't contain any fillers. Chomps are simply made with natural ingredients you could feel good about. Chomps only sources from farmers who raise animals humanely and farm responsibly. So we're looking out for the environment and our animal friends. Chomp sticks come in nine flavors, so there's something for everyone. Or grab a variety pack to satisfy your whole family's taste buds. Chomps are great on their own, or pair them with everything from fruit to hummus to crackers for a more perfectly daily snack. Right now, Chomps is offering our listeners 20% off your first order and free shipping when you go to chomps.com worm. Go to chomps.com worm to see all the delicious flavors and get 20% off your first order and free shipping. That's C-H-O-M-P-S dot com slash worm. Don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you. Happy chomping! He's making his rounds at the nightclubs. They came first. As we said, he was making 15, 20 grand just to show up. He would bring his friends. They would do like tours, which sounds so brutal. He would get there at midnight, do a ton of drugs, have threesomes. And just take pictures with everybody who showed up and then have a threesome and then go to the next city. While he was on these tours, he started doing drugs again. He says, at a minimum, I had a threesome every night. And then he talks about this one place where he almost had sex with 10 girls. And he was like, this actually makes no sense. No, so then a girl goes, I have an idea. What if you kick one out and then have three groups of three? And he's like, that makes a ton of sense. But then he was like, that's actually still too much. And so then he kicked three of them out and he was going to do two groups of three. But then he was like, I actually am still intimidated by this. So he had one foursome. But then he was like, but girls were still coming in and out all night. Like he was, it was insane. Then I started to hear the whispers of, you don't tell my boyfriend and I won't tell your boyfriend. I didn't like that. I put myself in the boyfriend's shoes and felt bad for them. But then my other head took over and I quickly dismissed the concern. Why is he obsessed with being for the boys? He loves the boys. He like would start a union of boyfriends. The only boy he doesn't like is Ronnie. Yeah. And sometimes Vinny. He says that he like actually didn't drink that much because he was just doing opiates the whole time. And so like in the morning, all of his friends would be like hungover and feeling like shit. And he's like, I didn't even feel like shit because I was just doing more drugs. And when you keep doing drugs, you never feel like you're not doing drugs. (laughs) It was, to say the least, not a healthy lifestyle. Terrible for me, mentally, physically, and spiritually. I wasn't taking care of myself. I wasn't sleeping. I was self-medicating, living minute by minute. And I guess this is when that contract negotiation happened for season two. He had, like, with this tour, firsthand experience of how many people in the world were obsessed with him. And the amount of money he goes, my brother surprised me with a new Bentley. And then he went somewhere else and he bought a Ferrari. Like, he was just spending, it was insane. He was spending so much money. And then he found out that they negotiated a new deal with MTV and they were getting a fuck ton of money. So they were getting a signing bonus, a half a million dollar ratings bonus. The per episode fee was above six figures. 
Back-end royalties pay handsomely to this day. In total, the contract was worth many millions. His brother got him a Bentley as a congrats. Then he got a Ferrari. He went to Armani Exchange, bought everything. Then he bought a ton of drugs. He bought 500 Perk 30s. I figured that would be enough to get me through filming. And as we know, that assumption was incorrect. Okay, I will say the one thing he does that I don't like is I don't like when drug doers explain how they smuggle drugs from place to place. Like, I know they're doing it because there's still always a part of their brain where they're like, I have to show everyone how fucking clever I am. It feels like almost enabling behavior to me to be like, that's a good idea. So that's how I showed up for Miami the second season with what I foolishly assumed would be enough drugs to get me through filming. Of course, as so often occurred, I had severely underestimated my habit. With my supply dwindling, I was fortunate or unfortunate enough to make the affirmation connection with the tanning salon owner. As we know, it was a relationship so valued that the prospect of losing it one of those days resulted in that slow speed car chase. So he thinks it's going over everyone's head. He thinks nobody knows that he does drugs, really. And then he sits down for his interviews. So like, you know, after they film a reality show, they have that day where the whole cast sits down and like does those confessionals. And they ask him, do you have a drug problem? And he flips the fuck out. He's like, that is so inappropriate. That's the craziest thing anyone's ever said to me. He like runs out of the interview. He refuses to go back. It ends up getting like written into his contract in future seasons that they can dock him money. if He, he... jumps into a cab and is like, go, go, go. And then of course he's like, listen, the truth was I just needed an excuse to get out of there so I could re-up on pills. He, like, calls the head of MTV and is like, they can't ask me disrespectful questions. Yeah, but he's also like, I used being angry as a way to be like, I need more pills. Because he was always being watched by them. Right. And he knows. He's like, I knew I was acting insane. My behavior affected everyone around me. The rest of the cast walked on eggshells. The once strong relationships began to decay due to my outlandish and toxic actions. And his actions were outlandish and toxic. I don't even know what this story is about, but he talks about having a threesome with Vinny and a girl. Yeah. And like covering his butt with a pillow so that the people in the control room can't watch. Well, the story is about how little he cared that he was on camera and how he was portraying himself. And so he drops the pillow because it was too hard to thrust and hold at the same time. He's like, nobody ever mentioned it. They didn't air it. And I'm just like, I cannot believe the bond of the men on the Jersey Shore. Like, I cannot believe that they've all had sex with each other. Yeah. They're like brothers in a fluid sense. I was in such a drug-induced fog, I didn't notice anything happening. It would take me years to gain the clarity and self-awareness required to see the damage I had done. He says that after season two, him and the rest of the cast did not talk for the entire off-season. They all were just, like, afraid of him and hated him. He thinks nobody really knew what was going on except for Jenny, who approached him because one time he offered her drugs. But I'm like, I don't know. Jenny talks. I think they were all figuring it out. I also feel like the way that he acted so defensive, like, what were they going to say to him? When a drug addict flips out anytime you accuse them of being a drug addict, I don't know. They all had jobs on the line. They all had jobs to do. I think that people are pretty intuitive about, like, when a fight is worth fighting and when a fight is worth, like, yeah. kind of just acting like it's not happening. So then he has a whole chapter about how celebrities were impressed by him. So Calvin Klein offered him $50,000, and they were like, we need half a million. And he's like, I didn't know you just did that for the clout. A Lamborghini dealership offered him, like, a specific special situation Lambo, and they were like, we only will do it if you give us two. And he's like, that was probably stupid. Yeah, so he is aware that his business was being run poorly. He did Dancing with the Stars. I, like, do feel like this is an absolute mindfuck. He's like, I was doing a bad job. Like, I was out there acting like a dickhead all the time, and then everyone would just come up and be like, we love you, you're amazing. But he says a couple of people were nice to him, and this actually warmed my heart. Jay Leno, Whoopi Goldberg, and Robert Downey Jr. all, like, specifically were like, buddy, you need help. Like, watch out. That's the way it was back then. I was like a celebrity to celebrities. Actors get to play cool on TV. I did it in real life. And other celebrities were always in disbelief that I was a real person. I don't know that you played cool. I don't know that anybody was like, he's so cool. Well, he talks about how he never seemed like phased 
by how he was being perceived. Do you know what I, like, I think that's what I mean by playing it cool. Like, when he goes on Dancing with the Stars, everyone else was, like, nervous, but he was just sitting back, and he's like, oh, I was just high as hell. But I do see how if you were also about to be on Dancing with the Stars, you'd be like, why doesn't he seem nervous? And you'd be like, he's just so cool. <laughs> he says, it was such a mind fuck. I felt tired, sad, empty, lonely. I started to think about when I'd last been happy, truly happy, before the money, the fame, the adoration. It occurred to me that it had been when I possessed nothing materialistic, just the love of a good woman. He missed Lauren, so he calls her, and she talks him through the night, being like, oh, I can tell you're in a bad spot. And then he calls her a few weeks later, and her phone is disconnected, and he finds out it's because her boyfriend at the time, who was, like, a serious boyfriend of hers, made her change her phone number. I'm sorry. Red flag on that, dude. Red flag. Well, I mean, she doesn't marry him. She marries the other one who— Perfect flags. Perfect flags the whole way around. If you're tired of hearing accounts of how fast and crazy my life was, believe me, living it was exponentially more exhausting. Okay, I just want to read this paragraph. The incoming money was crazy, even though I never really knew how much it all amounted to. Network checks of $700,000 landed every few episodes. The high-paying endorsement gigs kept coming. A protein-infused vodka, GTL laundry bags, the situation line of tuxedos and other clothing. There was a juvenile GTL book I put no effort into, especially compared to the dedication I now understand goes into writing a great book. There was a comic book loosely based off my escapades, bobbleheads, shirts, a baseball card. Yeah, so this is a lot about how famous he was. The Rock was like, Great going, dude. Then he talks about going to an MTV organized dinner for some of their biggest stars. The Hills girls were there. They couldn't wait to get a piece of the situation. The second we walked in the door, they ravaged me. I mean, they ripped off my clothes, hands rubbing all over my abs, ahem, some other places too. I had no choice in the matter. Not that I disapproved. He basically alludes to boinkin' Kristen Cavallari. The sad part is the only reason I remember that night is because I have a photo of Kristen Cavallari on her knees, kissing my abs while lifting up my shirt. Take that, Jay Cutler. You may have beaten me in cornhole, but I, uh, never mind. This is a new book. Oh my god, that's so true. I forgot that they're, like, divorced. Like, big divorced. But also, I'm just like, I don't believe you. I don't believe that you fucked Kristen Cavallari. You take that back. Which Hills girl? Audrina? I'm sorry, Lauren? Conrad and Low Bosworth were not ravaging the situation. I would go to my grave believing that. I would go to my grave believing that. But, like, he's not even saying, like, oh, I fucked Kristen Cavallari. He's saying, Jay Cutler, I fucked your ex-wife. Why are we bringing Jay Cutler into this? What happened to the guy who's, like, so much respect for the boyfriends? Okay, he also keeps on calling the situation a character. He says he modeled the situation character after The Rock. And this is, you guys know, an issue I have with reality stars when they keep on acting like they're doing a character because I am like, you're not. But also, to be on this many drugs and still insist it was like a bit, you weren't high on Percocet being filmed in a tanning salon maintaining method acting. Yeah. No, you weren't like above yourself being like, that's good TV. Yeah. So around this time, things are going crazy. He's making tons of money. He lists all the cars he has. I mean, it really is insane how much money. And he keeps saying he was spending it as fast as he was getting it. And I believe him. He's Me too. He was buying a car every day. Around this time, his brother and his actual manager, he had been put in touch with like an actual entertainment manager, were getting into fights. And he's like, I thought it was good to have two people with two perspectives. But ultimately, it was too much. So I fired my manager and kept my brother. And then I hired everyone else in my family. And he keeps on being like, I thought that it was creating checks and balances. I don't think he knows what that means. He's worn down. Things are crazy. His main thing that he's obsessed with is, like, having enough pills to get through a season because that's the period of time where he's most watched. And then they film a season in Italy, and getting drugs into Italy was, like, harder than even getting them into the shore house. And then he, like, ran out, but he did not know how to re-up in Italy. He's like, I don't even know if they care of them here. I don't know anybody. So he's going through opiate withdrawals, which is horrible. And he's filming a reality TV show. He's being watched like like a hawk. And he's fighting with Ronnie all the time. And Ronnie decides he's finally going to confront him. And we were talking to our friend Sophia last night, and she was like, you don't understand the way that they teased this fight. For weeks, it was them 
about to get into a fight and then Mike in the hospital, about to get into a fight and then Mike in the hospital, about to get in the fight and then Mike in the hospital. And you're like, what happened? Like, did Ronnie beat his ass? How bad was this fight? And then you watch the fight and literally Ronnie confronts Mike and Mike rams his head into a wall and passes out. He goes, I thought it would be sheetrock like in America, which first of all, I'm like, don't hit your head against sheetrock either. But he was like in Italy. So it was like a 10,000 year old concrete wall, like built into the bedrock like of society. Ancient like stone. <laughs> and it rocked his shit. And that's why I forgot that he had that famous neck brace for so long. Yeah, he sprained his neck. And then he's like, I guess it was fine because they gave me painkillers at the hospital. But not enough. He started drinking. And then it's almost over. He's so excited to go back home. And they give him news that, good news, we're going straight to Jersey. Like straight to the shore to film another season. They live in Jersey. I would love insight from the production company. I guess this is something they could never say. Because I'm like, what was the decision to go straight from Italy to New Jersey? Did it have to do with, Mike, the situation's drug use? Were you afraid if you let him out of your sight, he would fall off? So this is the thing that I hate. is because I do believe that a handful of these actions, switching the tanning salon, creating this, like, lockdown situation. Like, I do think that they know that things are out of control and they think they can control it back. And I think that, like, reality TV producers think they're gods. I don't even think they think they're gods, but I think they're, like, bottom-line fiends. I think no, they're... I think they think that they are, like, master puppeteers of human lives. Like, I, I mean, I think they're bottom-line fiends, yes, on one hand, but I think they think they're geniuses. I hear what you're saying, but I feel like in this situation, they quite literally were controlling him. Yes. And I don't think it was, like, particularly clever. I think they were like, well... He's too fucked up to work, but if we, like, never let him out of the tank, he can't get fucked up again. That's what I mean, though. They're like, okay, the situation is get the situation's getting out of our control. They think that they can then reel it in because they are so good at what they do. Yeah, so what I'm saying when they're bottom line fiends is I think they're like, this is untenable. How do we get a second season? We just have to get as much as we can now yeah. because it's going to go off the rails anyways. So he comes up with a scheme to get drugs, even though he doesn't have any break between Italy and the shore house. He's like, please, I miss my brother. He calls his brother and he calls his best friend the unit. And he knows the unit will bring him drugs and Mark will be the distraction. And he like creates a situation where he can get the drugs from the unit. And that's it. He's also addicted to lean now. That's like a big thing for him. He insists that the unit is not a drug dealer, just someone who can get him drugs whenever he wants it. He's just a friend. And they used to do this operation where they would get drugs in the bathroom at clubs because he's like, no one's picking a wad of toilet paper up off the bathroom at a club. Yeah, he figured out all these ways to get himself drugs in Jersey. And he knows he's being a fucking asshole. And he knows he needs to get sober. He's like, this is untenable. This sucks. He's also like getting pulled over by cops who are like, all right, have a good day. He yeah. loves cops because he's never suffered a true cop specific repercussion. And one time he's out with his friend, Johnny Unit. They all go back to the house. He has ketamine on him. So they arrest his friend. He's like, that's bad. He really watches a lot of his friends go down. Yeah. He has no problem with it. He goes to Australia for one last one. Yeah, he knows he needs to go to rehab, but he has this tour booked in Australia. And he's like, well, I can't not go to Australia. So he goes to Australia. He's fucked up the whole time. And then finally, MTV is like, we will pay for you to go to rehab, but you have to be in good shape when you come out. Yeah. Like physically, like not mentally. Literally, they're like, we need your six pack back. You don't look good anymore. <laughs> so he goes to this place called Cirque Lodge in Utah, but immediately it's leaked. And then he's like, well, I can't go now. I felt like I had no choice but to leave rehab once the news broke. My best friend Pete, who worked for me, along with a doctor and nurse, snuck me at the back. My team made plans to bring me to a secret location. I couldn't help but feel that my recovery had been robbed. I kind of feel that this wasn't the choice he wanted to make because he like knew that detoxing alone and like getting sober but without drug addiction treatment, he knew that that was like the wrong call, but he didn't know what else to do. 
So he does get fit again. He's boxing. He's going crazy. He's also on steroids now. <laughs> I mean, I'm really on his side. So he's like, so I get really into steroids, and his mental state is already precocious. He starts taking this thing called a vitriol shot, which blocks the pleasure receptors in the brain from feeling the effects of alcohol and opiates. So even if I suffered a momentary loss of willpower, drinking and taking oxy would have no effect on me. However, shockingly, when I told the prescribing doctor, who knew I had just been released from rehab for abusing prescription pills, that I was suffering from low energy, he inexplicably gave me a script for Adderall. So he gets addicted to Adderall. And then when he's like, I'm having a hard time sleeping because I'm addicted to Adderall, they're like, have you tried Xanax for bedtime? Like, this sucks. <laughs> no, they give him Valium. But still, so now he's taking a lot of ecstasy, Valium, Adderall, GHB, and drinking. He's addicted to Red Bull. Yeah. So they're doing another season. And then MTV is like, this is going to be the last season. We want you guys to go out on top. And they're all like, good. That's fine. <laughs> so he tries to come up with a couple of spinoff deals. Nobody really wants to work with him. He seems hard to work with. He starts doing opiates again. And then he gets on Celebrity Big Brother UK. And there he gets injured. And then he, like, plays up the injury, and then they just give him opiates. Yeah. When he gets back from Celebrity Big Brother, he becomes kind of a recluse. And then his sister is like, I bumped into Lauren at my workout class. And that's when he zeroes in on getting Lauren back. Each week, he was spending thousands of dollars on pills. He would go home, get high, watch movies surrounded by all my favorite foods, snacks, and an excess of McDonald's or other fast food. That was my life. It was obviously a miserable existence. So yeah, he gets back in with Lauren. They try to make it work. He's also still doing drugs, and he becomes the spokesman for Suboxone, which is like a drug that keeps you off heroin or opiates in general. But he is still doing opiates. Yeah, he's still doing opiates. He's still touring. He's like still addicted and struggling. He would like to be better, I think, for Lauren, but it's kind of at a rock bottom. There's like a whole thing where he thinks he's going to get robbed in Spain. I don't think we have to get into it. While he's in Spain, Lauren's brother actually dies from an overdose of opiates. I can't believe that didn't get him clean. Yeah. At this point, he wants to get clean. It's just too hard. He has no idea what to do next. He at one point thinks about selling his own sex tape. Yeah. I do wonder who the girls in that sex tape were. Me too. And something he, it seems, did not at all consider. He also decides that, like, maybe he should start a business. He thought he was going to do a family reality show after this. Nobody seems that interested. So he decides to take his last $300,000 and open a tanning salon in Middletown and then hire his whole family to work there and then make that a reality show. And that works as a reality show. But unfortunately, as soon as the show gets canceled because of his drug use, the business isn't profitable. And he blames the fact that he was paying his family too much to work it. But I'm like, you couldn't retool that at all? So... He, for a while, was paying his whole family out of his own salary. And then when he starts making way less money, he, like, I think just switches it to the tanning salon. I think that he just, like, didn't know how to tell his family he couldn't pay them. And so he just, like, bankrupts himself. But I don't understand how he's down to $300,000. I don't understand how they didn't know that they were doing that because they were in charge of the business. Somebody must have been looking at the numbers and realizing he can't be crunching them. Yeah. I mean, Mark, his brother, is one of the worst businessmen of all time. He's, like, more and more out of control. He gets arrested by the police for, like, fighting his brother at the tanning salon. At one point, he, like, is starting to get very paranoid from all the Adderall use. And he essentially hijacks his own car and, like, drives everybody in a death match. I mean, he's just acting insane and everybody's afraid of him. And it's very clear he's about to hit a rock bottom. And so then the law catches up. He has tax fraud charges. And he refuses a plea deal because they're trying to put him in jail for, like, 5 to 15 years. Luckily, he gets... A parole officer, Lori, who was a seasoned drug and alcohol abuse Sorry, specialist. A, a pre-trial officer. 
Probably a grandmother. She was a seasoned drug and alcohol abuse specialist about to retire when they charged her with fixing my ass. Tough as nails and deficient of bullshit. Lori probably saved my life. So he, after his first arrest for, like, the tax charges, is getting drug tested. And he's always failing his drug tests. And she's like, you have to fucking stop. He's always coming up with excuses. And they're like, we literally don't believe you. So he's, like, up against the law, facing potentially 15 years in prison, struggling with addiction, no money, no TV show. And he is out of drugs. Him and his friend Chris go to Newark to try to cop. They spend all night. Nobody has any. And finally, Chris comes back with heroin. He goes home and he's like, I always said I would never go this low. Like, I would never do heroin. But he takes a little snort. He's like, I don't feel anything. So I go to take a second bigger snort when his mother calls. He is, like, celebrating. He's like, wait a second. Maybe I don't actually like heroin. But then he's like, what if I didn't do it right? But he does say, he's like, this is my rock bottom. I can't do it anymore. He lets Lauren into the bathroom. He says, I'm going to fix it. Like, I need help. I'm done. He calls up Lori and says, I'm ready to go to rehab. She's so proud of him. And he ends up going to the Discovery Institute in Marlboro, New Jersey in the morning. It would be the first day of the rest of my life. He takes rehab so seriously. And then he relapses in rehab, like on Christmas. He's so sad that he's in rehab on Christmas. He loves Christmas so much. Also, he has spent all of his money. So I have to read this paragraph because it's so funny. Money, like water, flows in only one direction. Sometimes that direction can suddenly change without warning. For me, the current had turned 180 degrees. Instead of revenue coming in faster than I could spend it as it had for many years, money was now gushing in the opposite direction. That paragraph makes no fucking sense to me. No, money goes two directions for most people. And then also he's like, money goes in one direction unless it's going the exact opposite direction. And then sometimes it was coming in one direction but the other direction faster and then it switched paces in both ways. I don't think money is like water. Anyway, so they have no money. Like for a while he was living large with several luxury cars. Now he has like no clothes, no car. They have to like put everything in storage. They can't afford their rent. They're paying $2,700 in rent. They get evicted because they're three months behind. And so Lauren moves back in with her parents and starts working at Lululemon and he goes to rehab. You see, I finally realized what the problem was. I had an obsessive personality and nothing was going to change that. But what if I embraced that character trait and use it for good? I realized the only way I could find success was if I could harness and redirect that obsessiveness to feed myself only positive behaviors. So this is what I want to talk to him about. I feel like that, that can't be the end of his self-discovery. The easiest way to explain it is that we all have a good wolf and a bad wolf inside of us. I kind of find like it's a cop out to be like, I went to rehab and what I learned is I'm obsessed with drugs. <laughs> So he stops doing drugs, except for that one time in rehab that he does do drugs. He does another 45 days. He ends up doing two months in rehab, and then he does an outpatient program. So he does like a year of treatment. Oh, wait, this is such a funny line. It was a new twist on an old regimen. Instead of gin tan laundry, it was gym tan meeting. Gym for my body, tanning because it made me feel and look good, and AA or an NA meeting to be around like-minded people. It's so funny that he can never not be tan. Recovery became my passion. It still is. I was simply happy to live a normal life. I didn't want to be seen. I only wanted to take care of myself. I wanted to be a good person. If someone was on the side of the road with a flat tire, I wanted to be the one to stop and help them change it. He becomes a really good person. Him and Lauren get a dog, and they move to a house near the Jersey Shore. For me, it's always been about going to the shore, back to my roots where it all began. Him and Lauren are doing fine. He, like, does enough work that they can live, like, a very good life. They do a lot of, like, WeTV family boot camp shows. He does the worst cooks in America. He'll do anything for money. Yeah, and I mean, it's working for him. And he's, like, sober and he's positive. And then Burger King is like, we want to do a Jersey Shore commercial. And they all hang out for this Burger King commercial. And he's like, oh, my God, we all love each other so much. This was so fun. And then he goes to Dina's wedding. And in front of an open bar, he's able to maintain sobriety and be a good person. He's like, it's all about the law of attracting. I was able to show them who I was so they were attracted to me. And I do like that. By attraction, not promotion. Actions speak louder than words. I need to show you, not tell you. I actually really love that. Me too. 
But then MTV sees the Burger King commercial and they're like, oh, my God, we did make a really good show that one time. Something very interesting to me is he's like, we had been hearing rumors from the tabloids that MTV was thinking about picking up Jersey Shore again. And then sure enough, we got the call. They were interested. And I'm like, how did Daily Mail know before you? Great question. I'm like so confused about how TV gets made. But then like the things with his lawsuit are going really bad. I may have thought I had checks and balances built into the business, but if I wasn't checking and balancing, then what good were they? Great question. They are adamant about making a case against him. They've spent years building a case against him. And for a while, he, like, couldn't even pay his lawyers. And so they give him a plea deal, but his crime is a level 12. And he's like, I can't do a plea deal at a level 12 because I could go to jail. But at a level 11, people don't go to jail. They usually just get probation. And then finally, they get him down to a level 11 zone B, and he accepts the plea deal. I would be facing jail time for all of the things my accountant had done wrong, even though I was not part of it. But he thinks he's just going to get probation. Plus, Jersey Shore is ramping back up. So he's like, I don't know. Overall, I'm probably just going to get probation. I'm going to do the show again. I'm going to be rich again. It's going to be awesome. He gets the call from the lawyer. They're celebrating. They're so excited to sign the deal. He's like, take a photo of me and my Calvin signing this with champagne, which I don't know if that's the way to celebrate. But they're like, "Okay, we're going to survive this thing. I'm not going to go to jail. We're going to have our beautiful little family. So at the same time, MTV is rebooting the Jersey Shore and they're going to create this new show called Jersey Shore Family Vacation. And so things are looking up. You know, he's like getting out of his financial woes. He's paying his taxes again. The court actually even says, yeah, you can go to Miami because they understand that this is how he makes a living. So they're like to deny you the right to go to Miami to film is basically saying the government will have no way to reclaim the money that you owe us. So he even gets to fly down to Miami. He's a couple days late because he needs permission from the court, but it's looking good. He's not going to go to jail. He's back on Jersey Shore, baby. He's getting money again. He's getting kind of like relevance again. We're back to being our hilarious selves and making great TV the second that light came on. He manages to stay completely sober through shooting Jersey Shore Family Vacation. He also brings Lauren in as kind of like, because it's Jersey Shore Family Vacation. And he has a serious girlfriend now. He proposes to her on the show and their love becomes a whole storyline. He says he wasn't worried about being sober. He goes, enter my next persona, the designation, a compliment to Big Daddy Sitch. When my roommates were drinking and partying, the designation was the one taking care of them and driving everyone home. Oh, like the designated driver. Oh, Oh, I like that for him. (laughs) My obsessive personality had nearly killed me. Now I was utilizing it to crush sobriety and life. So everything is going beautifully. He's having a great time, you know, living life to the fullest. It's a huge premiere. Two and a half million people watched the premiere. Soon contracts and raises for season two were put back in front of us. He's back up to like making great money. He's making six figures again on the show. And they're like, what's next? We got to get the wedding. Of course, the whole thing is going to be filmed. So they start planning the wedding. I guess this is all on camera. But they still have like the end of the case. So after they finish shooting the first season of Jersey Shore Family Vacation, It is time for his sentencing. He's in the zone for probation and community service. So everyone with a zone 11 offense, I actually, I like don't really know what these words mean, but like, that's what he says. So he has a zone 11 offense. His brother, Mark, has a zone 13. So that's like, he's definitely going to jail. He's definitely getting some jail time, but no one in the state of New Jersey has ever gotten prison time with a zone 11. So... He goes in there. They plead his case. He's got two buddies there. He picked Vinny Guadagnino. Don't say it like that. He's my boyfriend. (laughs) Vin? Yeah. I think he's got a six pack and an apartment in Tribeca. We should be so lucky. I wasn't kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so he has Jenny and Vinny come in because cameras aren't allowed in, but they still are like, we need people in there for the shoot. We're going to film. 
First up is his brother, Mark. They know he's going to jail, but for how long? They go two years. Everyone's sort of shocked. They're like, that's a lot more than we were expecting. We were expecting a few months. But if they're giving him such a big sentence, that must mean he's taking the hit for both of us. Like they see it's all his fault. So Mike goes up very confident. And Judge Wigginton, who I have to say, he foreshadowed this quite heavily by saying the strictest judge of all time. I will say he seems like a strict judge because these sentences are strict. I think it's a lady. I guess I'm not sexist like you. I guess I think that boys are mean and girls are nice. So I thought that if someone was going to be mean, they're a boy. I've met ladies. They bitches. (laughs) Anyway, so his brother gets two years. Everyone is like jawed to the ground. They're like, that must be the worst of it. They're like, okay, if he's getting two years, which is like the maximum recommended sentencing, then he must have taken the hit for both of us. They see that he's the one who did the deed. But then Judge Wigginton looked down upon me and said, while I'm quite moved by Mr. Sorrentino's sobriety and progress these last few years, he still needs to be held accountable for actions years ago. That is why I'm recommending to the court that he serve eight months in prison, no less than two years of probation and 500 hours of community service. He's like chill. Everyone else gasps. He's like the whole room has no air left. And he's like, well, I have to take it in stride because what am I going to do? There's no other option. I knew it wasn't going to be easy to walk this road, but then it dawned on me why I was taking it in such stride. All the pain and suffering I'd endured over the years had prepared me for this. Nothing was as hard as getting and staying sober. I welcomed this next challenge. I was going to use this fresh pain as fuel to continue my journey of self-improvement. So he has some time before he has to report to actual prison. And so they're like, we have to pedal to the metal on this wedding. We want to get married before jail. And so MTV throws them like a dope ass wedding. Mm -hmm. And then it's all part of the show. It's all like a show thing. And then they have a last Christmas at home. Also, their honeymoon. Okay, they went to Miraval, which is where I went on my honeymoon, which is really hard because I don't like to think of myself as similar to Mike the situation. You guys are the exact same. My mom's going to kick herself because she's spent her whole life trying to make sure that wasn't true. Little New Jersey babies who grew up to become beacons in the entertainment industry. It is so humiliating that we are the same. We have the exact same taste. I just have less success. (laughs) It's because you don't do sit-ups as much. Yeah, it's true. January 2024, I get a six-pack. You need eight. (laughs) So he goes to jail. Luckily, he's got buddies already. Luckily, it's fancy jail. It's like an outpatient, what do you call it? A minimum security. An outpatient jail. No, it's a minimum security jail. Billy McFarland was there. Wait, okay. I want to say he kind of loves cops. Yeah. He like talks about going to jail and he's like, the worst part was the paparazzi. Everyone was like nice to me though. When I checked in, they were nice to me. As I prepared for the mandatory strip search naked, I couldn't help but be mindful of how uncomfortable a situation this could be. I knew there was potential of being violated, but that's not what happened at all. Instead of being treated inhumanely like an animal, it was the opposite. Truth be told, I was taken aback at how nice everyone was. Oh, you heard it here first, you guys. Prisons are actually good. The cops are sweet. The thing is, he's had so many run-ins with cops, and they've always been like, ah, you're okay. That Why would he hate cops? But like, They have his back. He's like doing <laughs> illegal stuff, and they're like, hey, buddy, we're on to you. Wink, wink. Hey, buddy, you're going a little fast there. I just wanted to give you some advice so you don't hurt yourself when you crash. Just a friendly reminder. Anyway, he also has friends in jail because he's Italian. His dad like puts word out. He's like, look out for my boy. Somebody random DMs his wife and he's like, my husband will have a little care package for him set up. And sure enough, there was a care package set up. It turns out it's like a pay it forward thing. He makes friends with the Italians. He makes friends with the kitchen people, the Russians. To me, he's getting built. Defunding the police and prison abolition means actually just making sure everyone in the world gets treated like Mike the situation. (laughs) So yeah, he makes friends in jail literally right away. His best friends are the kitchen guys, which is awesome. He like gets in with the Italians. 
Tony Meatballs and Anthony Cucumbers. He also is like in the gym. Is that their names? Where are they? Yeah, those are their names. Okay. He says Wait, they're both named Tony? Yeah, that doesn't sound too far from the truth. Okay. (laughs) Based on where I grew up. He says like the gym is racially divided, but he gets along with everybody and he knows how to use stuff. So they let him come and work out whenever he wants, which is great because he does an hour of cardio in the morning, an hour to two hours of lifting after lunch, and then wind sprints before bed. And then he gets into the other celebrities who are there. He has Billy McFarland from um, Firefest. He does not like Billy McFarland. He's like, we were cool, but he wasn't my buddy. He's like, he wanted me more than I wanted him. And I'm like, well, one of you has a lot of clout and one of you has nothing. Yeah. And then you've got one of like Trump's guys. Michael Cohen. Yeah. And the thing with the Trump guy is that he actually hates Trump and gave Mike the situation good advice for writing a book. So that was helpful. And he says the guy who hacked like that big celebrity nude leak. And he's like, but that guy was nice. I was like, no, he wasn't. He wasn't nice. He literally sex offended. And he gets out of jail. He's shredded as all fucking hell. And it's time for a new chapter. He's like, I was out of jail. I was the new me. The comeback is always greater than the setback. That's one of his favorite things. He put it on a T-shirt. You can buy it from his T-shirt company. They want to start a family right away. They're married. They get pregnant immediately. They tell everybody. And then unfortunately, she suffers a miscarriage. And he says this was like the hardest thing he's ever endured because this was different from the other adversities I'd overcome. This was harder. Prison, I could physically handle that. Addiction, it affected Lauren, no doubt, but it was my pain to shoulder. This wasn't like that. This was happening to my wife directly, and I would have done anything to take away her pain. I felt helpless, but quickly turned that sentiment around. Having gone through so much crisis in my life, I instinctively went into crisis management mode. I knew exactly what to do to overcome this tragedy. And then she ends up suffering another miscarriage and they find out she has endometriosis. Everybody has endometriosis. Nobody cares about women. If you have problems, if there's one lesson I have from these memoirs is you might have endometriosis and you need to ask specifically because they're not looking out for you. They're not checking you to see if something's wrong. They're literally only being like, do you have a pulse and a uterus? I don't even know if they would notice if you didn't have a uterus. (laughs) Anyway, they do a surgery for her to try to get rid of some of the scar tissue and she gets pregnant right away. They go all the way with it. They go all the way with it. And then he has a baby. It's all like during COVID for the most part. And he's like, it was all on MTV. So you can catch up with that later. And then also he's like, because it was MTV, I always got the nicest suite. It's so funny the way he's like so honest about being like, they paid for a better wedding. They paid for a better hospital suite. I'm like, yeah, the perks are worth it, I guess. If you don't care about like massive humiliation on a public scale and the loss of all privacy forever. And little baby Romeo was so cute. They did have (laughs) some problems though. He had a fever and wasn't able to leave the hospital for a while. And that was like, I mean, it was hard to read about. He ended up being okay, but I don't know. I can't imagine anything worse than looking at your little baby and having to look at IVs in his head. And having to leave the hospital without him. But now he's good. They fall in love with Romeo very quickly. They have their second daughter, Mia Bella. And good news, they've got a third on the way. So, you guys, now you know the story, but do you know the man? We try to get to know him. We invited to the Spotify studios one Mr. Michael Paul Sorrentino. Sorrentino. And here we are with none other than the iconic Mike the Situation. The inspiration, the, what's the other one? The there is the, the destination. Uh, there is the situation. Then there is the inspiration. Then we can go to the uh, designation. The designation. That's um, what I was thinking. The blessification. Of. The instigation. Uh, Big Daddy. I feel like you start with an instigation. You know what? I was just telling my publicist in the car. There's a fine line to making TV and and making entertainment. 
to also like being a changed man. There's a fine line right there. Sometimes I have to really walk like a tightrope because everyone's like, okay, you're sober eight years. That's amazing. You're a great dad. You're a great friend. And then all of a sudden you're on reality TV and you got this. Sometimes it's a, it's, sometimes it can get messy. Before we actually get into the book, can you think of any times, even recently, where you've been like the funniest and best TV I could do right now would be this, and then you just like have to force yourself to do the opposite? Is there ever a time when you're like, the best TV thing I could do would be to like jump out of a moving car again, but instead you have to be like, I'm a dad, I have to do something different? Well, I did jump out of a plane last year. Oh, but like with a parachute. For for a parachute for uh, a gender reveal. Okay. okay. For, for my um For your gender reveal or for whose? My, my baby girl. Okay. 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 What was pink? I had smoke shooting from my uh feet. Okay. Like the like little um as you jump out of the airplane, they had little like uh streakers, like little smokers on my feet. Which was really cool. That is cool. So you've learned that you can like plan fun, crazy, entertaining shit. No, I mean when I was when I was younger, I'm mean, not younger, in my twenties in the first iteration of Jersey Shore. I was what's called a legendary savage, mm, okay? Sure. Uh, some of those tales are in the book. Some of those things you read and you read the book, you're like, oh my God, like how is he alive right now? Now, the elevated, mature, sober dad, loyal, dedicated husband, I'm the best version of myself now. So the conversation, the lines that come out of my mouth, the interviews, everything is top tier. If I'm at a bar, I don't need to drink um, because... You know, my personality is already at a, at a, at a 10. Yeah. You yeah. know what I'm saying? There's no heightening the best. Pretty much. You can't get above the mountaintop. Pretty much, yeah. So let me ask this. This is a question we were thinking about, and it's something we've seen actually in a lot of reality star memoirs. We've read Audrina, Patridge's, that comes to mind specifically. But you talk a lot about when you were starting out on Jersey Shore, there's the character of the situation, and you knew that that character was going to be a hit. And in the book, there's almost this sense that you were like cultivating a second persona. I wanted to get into... How aware were you or how much credit can you honestly take? Because it also seems like you were going through a lot at the time. It's hard to know how much awareness you would have had to kind of create these two versions of yourself. When you're talking about the situation, the character, how different was the situation, the character on camera versus all the time? The difference between Mike Sorrentino and the situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was like putting gasoline on fire. I was already a wild kid. I was already careless, reckless, carefree. With the cameras on me, it was almost like a license to steal. I also was a big fan of uh, The Rock on uh, WWE, and he created a larger-than-life personality. So I always thought that nobody had ever done that for reality TV. Mm -hmm. Um, So I had introduced the situation, which ironically, I had got that nickname in real life um, probably a couple months prior as a result from, from celebrating a modeling contract that I got for fitness and underwear modeling in New York City. So it just all really came together mm-hmm. at the right place, at the right time for me. So the difference between Mike Sorrentino and the situation early on was really, like I said, the best description is gasoline to a fire. Uh, it just made the fire uh, an inferno, uh, an elevated, more wilder, more extra version of myself. But then I almost feel like with reality fame and the tabloids and paparazzi right now, it almost becomes like the mask from the movie The Mask. Uh Because then it's almost like, when aren't you on camera metaphorically? Because you're going out and doing these events and tours. Like, what my question is, is after season one became such a hit, were you ever able to go back to Mike Sorrentino? Oh, wow. Very good question. 
Probably not. Yeah. You know, probably those lines mesh together to, to be one. And then obviously once they started to pay me or once I got that big raise between seasons one and two and I got million dollar raises and we were like the first kids to start to get paid millions of dollars in reality TV. And then I had, you know, the Lamborghinis and the Ferraris and the Bentleys and the show is number one in the country. It was definitely hard to turn off that excess. Everybody wanted to be around you. Everybody wanted to take a picture with you. You go from not having to file a tax return because you're a young kid and you don't make enough money. Well, that was to, my qu- okay. to, to $5 million a year. And what comes with that is something that at the time I wasn't prepared for. I didn't have the experience to know what you needed to do when you started making millions of dollars. You talk a lot about like building this character because nothing had ever been seen like it on reality TV before. Yeah. In the book, you talk a lot about like knowing that this reality TV show was your shop, but there was actually not a lot of this type of reality TV existing at the time. No. Like it had just sort of started to come into play. Yeah, the and Hills, it was like Hills was the Hills was big. But I was going to ask like who was your context for like what reality TV stardom looked like? Was it just the Hills? I did watch the Hills and I did watch Laguna Beach. Okay. Um, that was all I really knew of it. I didn't watch uh, Real World, obviously, uh, years before that. I didn't know of it. I didn't even want to be in reality TV. I wanted to be like Mark Wahlberg. I wanted to be an underwear model and take it into uh, movies. Yeah. I thought my abs were, you know, something out of uh, a sci-fi movie, you know? (laughs) (laughs) know? It sounds like they kind of were. Yeah, they they were. um, And that's why I definitely was picked immediately for the show. The show originally uh, in 2008 was owned by VH1. And you got to understand that Viacom owned both VH1 and MTV. Eventually, between 2008 and 2009, it went from concept of America's next top Guido or America's hottest Guido to Untitled to Jersey Shore. And then they found the rest of the cast. Can I ask you something? I hope this isn't too personal. We've read about your fitness journey, your fitness obsession. You talk about having OCD. Were you ever worried about maybe crossing over into like an eating disorder? Have you ever considered whether three hours of gym time and being obsessed with your body like that? At what particular point in my life? There's a couple times where you go hard for it. I think, I, I mean, I'm never going to be able to change yeah. who I am as, as a person, as the, you know, at the core. And that's that obsessive personality. And, and that's what got me into so much trouble in my life. I didn't exactly know who I was. Mm-hmm. And the only way that I could try to change it was change the behaviors or redirect that obsessive personality from negative behaviors. Mm-hmm. And I could only feed it positive behaviors. Yeah, it's just interesting because I feel like we read these things like we've read it in Jason Derulo's book as well. But what in a woman would often present as like an eating disorder. You yeah. still see it today. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, if you watch my shows today. When I order at a restaurant, I order the whole menu. Yeah, I was reading like when you got out of prison and stuff. But. I, you know, I mean, like I still have that obsessive personality, but I have, I have a hold on it. You know what I'm saying? At the time when I needed it the most, I used it as my superpower to get me out of the hole that I put myself in and rebuild my life. And then obviously you have to fix the wreckage of your past when, when you go through addiction. And I still have that personality today, so I always have to be mindful to sometimes pull the reins in, maybe exhibit some balance if I can. But like I said, I I have to watch myself. When I go to the gym sometimes, it happens when I go to the gym. Sometimes I'm in the gym for, you know, two hours. And sometimes when I eat, I order the whole menu. You see the obsessiveness there. Yeah, it's like that personality trait that you have to watch in everything. Yeah, can't change it. So let me ask you, 
you talk a little bit about like your family and the dynamics, but you don't get a super into like your upbringing and the way that might have shaped you as a person. Do you think any of that obsessiveness came from your childhood, family things? I know you went to rehab and you did the work. Have you ever been in therapy? Have you really ever examined things in your childhood that you think might have made you certain ways? Obviously, I think all of our upbringings play a role in in who we are as people. You know, you, you know, I think that would be naive for anyone to say that that didn't play a role into who I was. You know, coming from an Italian American family, I did touch on that a little bit, where I thought my father may have been in direct or direct relation with maybe the mafia in in Staten Island when I was younger. Which most people in that area know someone or has a relative that at that particular time in the '80s was connected to that. Also, I do I did express a relationship to that love affair of being Italian and also movies like Godfather and Goodfellas. And maybe that definitely played a role into how I fell into drug dealing as a young man because I always kind of wanted to maybe live that lifestyle. Like you thought it was cool. Yeah. I know you're the third of four, but you're the third boy. Yeah. I mean, did you feel growing up, you went from quiet to kind of outgoing? Do you think that came from anything like wanting a little bit more attention? Was there, you know what I mean? Be- I, I was always a class cr- clown. Okay. You know, I was always, I always wanted the attention. I always had a ton of friends in high school. I was always definitely the the most popular. But at the same time, that was on my priority list. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe you are definitely, you might, you might have been a therapist in another <laughs> life. And I've been through a lot of therapy in my life okay. through rehab, anger management, court ordered or not. But uh, definitely, definitely played a role for sure. The way the fame and the like kind of unlimited money sort of enabled this addiction Like, what was sort of fueling it before that? Uh, Probably um, curiousness. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but when I was, you know, 18, 19 years old, I was always curious. I always wanted to test the limits. I wanted to see what, you know, what my body could do uh, in sports. I always questioned things. So I, I think I was just a curious kid. I wanted to experiment. And that experimentation got me in trouble because I, yeah. I had no idea that I had uh, that obsessive gene or that obsessiveness in me. And eventually, once it got a hold of me, I didn't know how to escape it for a while. Yeah. yeah. Something I really admired in your book is your love for your wife yeah. comes through. <laughs> Let yeah. me tell you, I've never say we've read now 150 celebrity memoirs. Oh, wow. Probably more. anyone's ever loved their wife the way you love your oh, wife in God. the book. My wife saved my life, though, you know. And she was there from the beginning. She was. But I was very impressed with, like, your loyalty to her and yeah. your love of her when you had been through a divorce that seemed like, or when your parents had been through a divorce. Uh, yes. Did their relationship impact? Oh, definitely. I mean, when my family got into a divorce, um, mm-hmm. it definitely shook up my world. I mean, you come from an Italian family, you're supposed to only get married once. Um, and only do it once. So I think I follow where my parents may have failed, okay? And that's where the love and loyalty comes from, as well as that whole loyalty also comes from the whole life of being an Italian. Yeah. You know, as well. Well, I have a question about the opening of the book. Mm. Your brother, it's Christmas Eve, goes, you got to file taxes. Yeah, yeah. And you go, let's do it later. Or he says, we could do it later. And you say, we'll do it later. And listen... We both have been like, if someone presents us with the opportunity to do it later, I would say later. That happened to me actually last year. The exact I had an accountant who told me he said we'll file an extension. I said okay. I didn't know that summer I hadn't paid taxes yet. I go well, we filed an extension, and somebody goes that still means you have to pay them. And 
an accountant had fucking said that to me. And if you do an extension, you have to pay interest on that extension. Yeah, no, he had, not only had he not told me that, he hadn't told me that at all. He just said, are you cool yeah. to do it in September? I said, if they're cool, I'm cool. Yeah, he said, it's, it's all good. It, you can file the extension, but it's, it's, it's under a penalization to yourself, pretty much. So I'm saying I related to you and understanding that if you hire somebody to help you with your fucking business yeah. and they tell you business is handled or yeah. this is an option, yeah. you assume it's a legal option. Yes. I appreciate that you took accountability, but it felt like there's still a part of you that's like, well, I thought I had it handled by outsourcing. Um. Well, I remember when uh, we first sat down, I don't know if we were recording, but uh, the year before I didn't have to file taxes because I didn't, I didn't make enough money. I was a young, young kid in his 20s. And then you go to the next year making close to $5 million and you're sitting on the couch, okay? You have a Ferrari outside. You're on the number one show in the country and you're just basking in your famousness while your mom's making lobster regonata. I mean, you're just on such a high. And also I had like a, a pocket full of 100 Percocets probably. You were taking so many drugs. Right I know. That was a lot that. of drugs. When you were on like 900 milligrams a day, I was like, he's going to die. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, so at, in that moment, I was not my best self. I was intoxicated, yeah. okay? And when when they said, oh my God, you have to file your taxes, obviously the year before I didn't file my taxes. And then eventually within three seconds later, but if you want to get them next year... I agree with I was, you. I was like, I would say that I'm, too. Is that allowed? Okay. Right, why not? But what I'm asking you now is like, I appreciate that you take accountability in the book, but in your heart of hearts, I would be pissed at my brother. I have a brother. Yes. I'd beat the shit out yes. of him over yes. changing the channel. Yes. You know what? If I, my I, brother got me thrown yes. in fucking jail because yes. I hired him to do a job, I yes. would kill him. Yes. <laughs> at, at, listen, at the end of the day, you have to think about this. If you're in front of a judge, right? And you're not guilty, they can't send you to jail. But I was guilty and they sent me to jail. So that means even if he didn't file the taxes, guess who should have filed the taxes? I would say the with, person you hired to with, do it. The person you hired. Yeah, no, but, but yeah. I, I, went to, I went to prison, so yeah. I, I would know if your yeah. name is on an account, you have to file it no matter what. And, and, and that, that actually taught me to have... One million percent accountability. Yeah, you know, in every and every decision <laughs> that you have, because if I wasn't guilty, then they wouldn't have sent me to prison. The other thing I'll come to your defense about, you know, you're sitting on the couch. You weren't making money last year. Now you're high on Percocet. Yes, very high. Even if you weren't high, you don't set out to become an underwear model turned actor because you like love spreadsheets. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yo, like, exactly. I, I just feel like for us sitting down yes. to like do our our finances yes. is such, we have someone who does our accounting and it's like my dad and I do really trust him and I swear to God, if my dad gets me thrown in jail, I'll have a full blown I did, meltdown. We're, we're definitely not known but, for our budgeting. But yeah. like for us to sit down and just balance our books, it takes such an effort. It's so hard for us to do. We have to get ourselves a treat before, a treat after, yes. a treat in the middle. Like, yes. I don't like having to look at numbers anywhere. Yes, yes. <laughs> I applaud you guys. Listen, make sure that you file, file your taxes. You because, freak, I'm freaked because, out. Because if you don't, they'll come and knock on your door three years later and come get so you. So that's what happened is you just didn't pay them one year? One year I just didn't file the taxes. And that decision, which is on the first page of yeah. the book, would end up haunting me for... 
I don't know. I mean, maybe 10, uh, 12 years later. Why you know? do you have to go to court? Can't they just say you owe us this plus interest? They wanted to make an example out of me. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, you know, I, Can I, I say they did? I'm so fucking freaked out. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Personally. I mean, if you yeah, you guys read the book, so you know that I was in the zone uh, for probation and community service, and I had no priors. I'm going to throw in that I also had zero points on my license. So, so, I, like, so like I should have gotten probation. And they did throw my brother in jail for two years. I'm like, oh, he. I'm like, he got the hit. They're not going to throw me in. And then, sure enough, they they gave me all the above. So Ashley has a point that she'd like to make. How did you not have any points on your license? Because do you ever feel like what could have happened? Because you did get pulled over a lot. I did. You got pulled over with like tons of drugs in your car. Tons of drugs. You were like writing illegal prescriptions all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't there part of you when you sit here and go, and I had no priors? Isn't part of you going? But I should have. Um, you, you know what? I it, it still happens to this day. Uh, my brain is mind blown from like the amount of, like why and how much people love me so much, and like I would get pulled over by cops all the time. They'd pull me over and be like, Mike, uh, you know, sorry for pulling you over, but uh, my wife loves you. Can we take a photo? And I was just going like 120 miles an hour in a Lamborghini. Yeah. Um, but even before the fame, when you're just like making runs to Brooklyn. I, I was a maniac. I was a maniac, yeah. Like, yeah. So what I'm saying is when you sit here and go, it's not fair, I had no priors. Is there any part of you being like, well, maybe this is the cosmic retribution for yes, the yes, karmic, the yes, karmic priors? Yes, <laughs> yes. I definitely had a number of karmic priors. <laughs> and I'm lucky to be sitting in in this yeah. chair right now no, I'm glad talking you are to too. you guys and telling you, my my story uh, of of my experience, strength and hope. I mean, it's yeah. such a crazy story. It's in there. actually insane. The money part blows my mind that you went from having like millions of dollars to not being able to pay rent in like. Oh yeah, a couple years. Couple yeah, what years. was the time? Yeah, just a few years, right? You went from nothing years. to everything was, to nothing. Uh, yeah, we were making almost, you know, co- it was easy, uh, close to five million a year for a couple years straight. But I've spent it all on uh, obviously uh, drugs. Like drugs, obviously five hundred thousand dollars on drugs. That's. Yes. When they t- I would love to spend that much money on anything. When they told me that, I, I was like sitting across from my accountant and my attorney and he's doing the numbers and he's, he was like, yeah, you're, you're not really missing any money, uh, meaning nobody stole from you. But it looks like you were uh, you spent around five hundred thousand dollars on drugs, and they they took that amount from like ATM withdrawals, <gasps> and they would say, and they they added them all up or whatever. And I had to be totally accountable. I mean, this was a very huge case. This was the United States versus Mike. The situation, and they had they actually that's had, crazy. They had that the they situ- called it the situation. They, they had the situation on the court paperwork. I didn't understand. I was like, wow. This that's is why crazy. I have no respect for the legal system. I was crazy. <laughs> I was like, wow. And I had to be totally accountable. I was a legendary savage mm-hmm. when I was, you that know, in my, in my in my twenties. I'm lucky to be alive in here talking to you guys. Um, and I've had such an amazing turnaround since then. So this actually might sound insane, but five hundred thousand dollars. That is a fuck ton of money. But I was always like, well, I think that prescription pills are like the most expensive. Thing to buy on the street. Oh, and so definitely. I was like, oh, that seems actually kind of low. Oh, then. oh, definitely. Oh, well. I mean, listen. Uh, <laughs> at the time, that was my drug of choice was yeah. uh, prescription drugs, and and um, they they have just skyrocketed over the past. You got uh, in early. You know, yeah. w- over the past like ten years. Well, you, you should have done was sit on them like an investment and then <laughs> turn those things. Yeah. Well, I mean, when I was younger, I was trying to turn them. You yeah. know, with the prescription yeah, pads true. I had. Um, and eventually that turned into a habit and, 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 and they say never get high on your own supply and you see that that had happened there. So let me ask you this question. You're an Italian guy. You know about 
the mafia. Yeah. You know about loyalty. Yeah. There's a couple things in this book that I'm like, isn't he afraid he's going to get in trouble for saying this? I would never call you a rat. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, of course. Uh, no, I. Yeah, the <laughs> government. The, the government asked me to rat on your brother. Yes, but did, what yeah. I will. There was the cop who tipped off your brother that you were on a watch list yes. for drugs. I'm I like, should, I, I should you be writing that down? I didn't name him. You didn't name him. What about true. the union job that your dad got you that you didn't go even work at? I mean, that's. That's like uh, I wouldn't fuck with the union personally. Yeah, th- you know that I didn't name them either. But at the same time, that was just—I uh, mean, it's the truth. You yeah, know? yeah. I, yeah. My yeah. dad got me a union job, um, which is very coveted job. And yeah, he, Joey Fistbumps picked it over the show. Yes, I mean, listen—you got to know somebody that knows somebody to get a union job in Staten Island. Uh, it pays very well. But eventually, at the time, I was uh, in a perpetual daydream because I had just shot the first yeah. season of Jersey Shore. Well, and, can we be uh, honest with ourselves? What time in your life would you have gone out and been a good laborer? I mean, I, I totally agree with you. It's definitely <laughs> it's not easy work, um, but it pays really yeah, well. Yeah, but it oh, seems no. like you were at no point in your life interested in going in. No, <laughs> no. No, my father wanted me to be uh, in the union or he wanted me to be a firefighter or the military. Yeah, sure. and he pretty much said like the only person that's going to be able to straighten you out is Uncle Sam, which we all know. Uncle which Sam. was right, which was right. Ultimately, Uncle Sam did straighten me out, um, you know, and uh, threw me in prison for almost a year. Yeah. Here's something that we were kind of laughing about: is you're talking about when the Jersey Shore show finally gets picked up, the yeah. pilot. They're finally going to film it. You've been waiting for a year. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sitting, going, "Well, what was he doing for a year?" And you go, "I was sleeping on people's couches, I unemployed." Was. And then you're like, and I was working so hard to get okay. this show greenlit. Uh, well, what do you mean working so hard? I don't know if I, I – I'm, I'm laughing right now, right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess you could say I was in my brain hoping. Yeah. Okay. Hoping and so hard. Hoping, hoping so hard it, hoping, it exhausted you. <laughs> hoping so hard. And I stayed, you know, in communication with the producers for like almost a year while the show eventually got picked up. So really, there wa- I, I will say there was no working hard to get the show picked up. I was, I was sitting back and waiting for the wheels to turn, I guess. You know what? I'll give it to you because sometimes when I have something to do later in the day, you say I worked all day, but you were waiting for the one thing you had was, later in the was, day. Was, it's very difficult to get something done when you're anticipating. I was manifesting. <laughs> yeah, and you fucking manifested harder than the rest of us. I, I, I did. You I've know. never once manifested $5 million in a year. The other two guys that were on the pilot, they didn't believe in themselves or the show. I mean, and Joey fist bumps. He decided to go another way and... He's fist bumping at work right now, not on this awesome podcast. We all know <laughs> how the story ended there. So I got to ask you about this book specifically. You know what I actually love that you did in this book? Numbers. Yes, we love I when guess like after your run in with uh, the law, you're like, here's how much I was getting paid. Here's how much the new episodes are worth. I really respect uh, that. I mean, they already sent me to prison no, for that. It. So I could be full disclosure. Yeah, yeah. Well. it's all out. In- <laughs> yeah. So this book, how did it come about? The publisher hit up my team and they said that I think once a year they have like a wish list of people that they would like to collaborate on their story. And from what they knew of they were like, you have a really good story to tell. And they had no idea what they were going to get. So I was flattered when they came and approached us and said, we'd like to write a, a book on your life. When we eventually started to do it, they were definitely mind blown from the content that, that we got. So, And it took us almost two years to get it. So I'm definitely very proud of, of the product of it. What was working with oh. Andy Simmons? Yes. The writerliness of Andy Simmons. I felt like I could hear it. There were some sentences in there. Have you ever called yourself a cocksure? <laughs> 
<laughs> Let's have it your smile. Cocksure smile. smile. Was that uh, him or you? <laughs> um, once in a while, he would he would present an adjective or a word, and I'd be like, uh, I don't know if I don't know if I've <laughs> would use that word, but. All right, but there was probably maybe a handful in the book. Yeah, maybe, there was. Maybe, I think I, yeah, maybe there was like a couple. Fi- maybe like five. But I liked it. I found it yeah. very poetic. Yeah. No, I, I. I told the story well. It took two years to do it, and we had, we did the outline first, mm-hmm. then we inserted all the craziest stories that I was willing to tell, which I'm pretty sure I told ninety eight percent. I'm pretty sure, and then we filled in the de- in into the blanks after that. Then we rewrote it probably three times after that to make sure that it was in my voice. I was super happy with the end product, but again, I I, I just did the audiobook, so I know some of the words <laughs> yeah. that you're talking about. And there are probably maybe like five words as you go through it. And I just attributed to just jazzing up the book a little Listen, bit. Listen, oh, we respect. Yeah. It's yeah. hard to write a book. Yeah. We have nothing but respect for celebrities who work yeah. with authors yeah. because when they don't work with an author or a ghostwriter or a co-writer, yeah. it's a bad book. I think he did an amazing job, but we had to work together to change it probably three or four times to get it in the way that I wanted it to be, to tell it the way that I wanted to do with conversations and things like that, adding in certain quotes at certain times that were meaningful in my life. So, yeah. It was very lean. I appreciated that. I got to ask the inserts from family and friends. What was the decision behind that? The writer asked me, at first I didn't want to do it. Interesting. Because I wanted... It just to be from my from my point of view, and then he asked me. He's like, you know, do, can, do you think we can start to get involved? Like your mom, when we're talking about the beginning of your life, what do you think about getting the cre- the concept creator of Jersey Shore in? What do you think about getting some of the cast in there? And then I'm like, okay. He's like, it's not going to be a lot. It's going to be little inserts to add to your voice. And I I okayed it. So you, at the very beginning of this interview, you talked about how going on the Jersey Shore sort of created this blank check aspect. Or not, you didn't say blank check. You said, like, you could just do anything. Pretty much. Like, you, pretty I guess, much. kind Gasoline. of like Gasoline. Pretty much. Situation. You could get away with stealing. I pretty much could do whatever you could get I away with for, anything. for many years straight. So do you feel that that sort of empowered your addiction and your, like, ability to get drugs because you were just like, no matter what I do, I'm not getting caught. Like, you've already gone through these years where you're just not getting caught speeding in a Lamborghini. Yeah. You're not getting caught, like, yeah. during any of these regular situations, and now you're a celebrity. It definitely highlighted everything. But if you guys obviously read the book, uh, before I got famous, I was a drug dealer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so it highlighted old bad habits. It seems like you think that the production knew that you were addicted to drugs. I mean, they definitely 100%. <laughs> they just couldn't find... Uh, a specific physical evidence to, to, I don't know, I don't want to say nail me, but uh, reprimand me, I guess. Mm-hmm. When you talk about like the wordless exchanges in order to cop drugs while you were actively like miked and on the show, were you like writing things down? Like, how did you create this I exchange? Thought, I, I mean, I thought about it. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm miked 24 7. There's a camera on me. My main goal and priority in this Mission Impossible was to seek my drug of choice. Because how did you, with a tanning salon operator, create this system wordlessly? I mean, if you're experienced enough Mm -hmm. um, and you're young, you can look at someone's eyes and you could be like, yo, he's high on cocaine right now. He's high on Molly probably right now. The eyes are, are, are little pin drops. That's definitely an opiate. I mean, it was just by chance that I walked into a tanning salon and it was like a trigger, I guess. I noticed it right away and I'm like, in my brain, my wheels started to turn like, 
this guy is high on opiates right now. I didn't know they were Roxy's at the time. I mean, they could have been Percocets. They could have been Vicodin's. But I knew that he was on like the same wavelength as me. I just needed to find the window when I could take the mic off and also at the same time when the camera was not on me. So the only time that happened was when I went into the tanning bed. When you walk into a tanning bed, uh, you get naked. Yeah. So when that happens, they take the mic off, you hand it to the producer, they walk out of the room, the camera leaves the room, and I had probably a short second window that happened uh, on a random day with the owner when he walked in and a little tap and a little sign like, hey, I know it's up when you go like that, okay, <laughs> with with the eyes. Yeah. And then, and I was like, yo, man, you know, let me get that. You know, that's all yeah. I needed to do. And then you guys just had a system. And then the next time I came in, he had like a 50 pack waiting for me. But it was so crazy because it's so crazy. I'm talking about this, but imagine walking into your tanning bed. Oh, it sounds with, crazy. With with, with a, the towel there waiting for you, the eyeglasses, and then underneath the eyeglasses is a cellophane filled with 50 sets. Sometimes it could have been 100, but some, most of the time it was 50. And these little uh, blue pills. And MTV had no idea. Every time I'd walk into the tanning salon, there would be the, the tanning lotion, uh, the, the, the eyewear, the, the towel, and a cellophane with 50 little blue pills. I'd open it up. I'd probably take six. And then I'd go tanning for 20 minutes, come out, and be like, oh, my God, that was such an amazing tan. Yeah. Uh, and then I would, Cost me thousands of dollars. <laughs> yeah. And then I'd walk out, and nobody knew a thing. And then there was no words to me need, needed to be exchanged. I mean, you could just go like this, which means refresh. So you say they were never able to catch you specifically to reprimand you. No. What do you think they would have done, though? Do you think part of them didn't want to find it because what would they have had to do if they realized you were addicted? I mean, yeah. I mean, you definitely have you, you definitely I think the word is what conundrum. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. Right? A situation. <laughs> yeah. A situation. You're talking about the, the biggest show in the country at the time. One of the main characters is smuggling drugs in every way possible. They knew about it. I mean, I'm sure they may have given me the ultimatum and the talk uh, a little sooner because eventually they gave me an ultimatum in season five uh, when my behavior was just so reckless, so careless. Like when you were throwing all that patio furniture and stuff that time? That or? was number two. Number five was like after I banged my head into a concrete wall, yeah. I was in a neck brace and I was in sunglasses. And then we did one more season and I escaped a few more times and they had had it. They actually put in my contract, if I escaped- yeah. They could take the millions from me. But I feel like they're not saying if you continue to use. They're saying if you get out of our sites. I mean, I think yeah. I think of a network. I mean, I, I also work at rehabs now uh, mm -hmm. to help people that are suffering from the disease of addiction. I think when you if you do catch somebody, they merely just have to go to treatment and, and be accountable. But do you think they would have wanted you to do that? Because would it, doesn't that get in the way of filming? I mean, probably as soon as the season ends, okay. they're going to yeah. say, you know, you got to go to rehab. Do you think the Italy to Jersey transition was because of your addiction problems? No, I don't. I don't think that they had a, a had a had a handle on it yet. Um, I think that you know my manic and crazy and reckless behavior. It was definitely so many red flags, you know. Um, but at the end of the day, it's also can be construed as good TV. Yeah. That year, we got like nine million viewers, which is like Game of Thrones numbers. When I banged my head into a concrete wall and, <laughs> and I, I mean, had an incredible I, imagery. I, I mean, it's a Halloween costume to this day. It's, to this day, it's an iconic Halloween. My most 
my most worst moment in my career. Every year, kids by the thousands dress up with neck brace and sunglasses. Do you feel that reality TV production, not necessarily MTV, but just like overall bears any responsibility for the way that addiction is constantly inflamed because of the way that like they want you to be fucked up, like they want you to be acting insane, but like not too insane? It's definitely a risk, you know, for the production. If you get too out of handle, you can get yourself canceled and the whole show. Yeah. Right. So there's definitely a fine line right there. And again, I, I have a, a ton of experience in addiction. It, it definitely falls primarily on that person, that they have to do the work. They have to put their hand up and say, I surrender. If production catches you, they're obviously going to sit you down, okay? Because they're putting the show at risk, putting yourself at risk, everyone at risk. I mean, everyone's making money by the millions or maybe even more than that with the merchandising and reruns and everything like that. So if they were to catch you or catch me or maybe catch one of my castmates, they'd be able to sit you down and probably send you to rehab. It will probably be part of the story. Mm -hmm. And then obviously when the show's on its break for a couple months in between season, that other person's in rehab getting the help. When they get out, now it's a new season. They film that person getting out. So there might not even be a break. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it could be good for TV either way for them. It so. could be good for TV. I mean... I was saying the Vanity Fair article that came out recently, Bethany Frankel is saying there should be a reality star union. And there's a lot of... It might happen one day. Examples of people on Bravo saying they were like struggling with alcoholism. Oftentimes they were in sobriety and they felt that there was a lot of pressure from production to drink again. I See, I'm not a part of those Bravo uh, productions, but I, I'd have to say that no one pushes you to drink. You know what yeah. I mean? They push you to be entertaining. You know, right now, I don't need any alcohol to be the life of a party or have an amazing conversation now. Some people take it upon themselves to think that, oh, I got to make something happen. I got to start a fight or I got to drink an alcohol. I got to throw a bottle. I got to do this. That's on you. You know yeah. what I mean? You are responsible for your own actions. So, you know, I, I, I do hear what's happening with, with Bethany and I haven't been a part of any uh, Bravo show, so I don't know, but I know that you need to be responsible for your own actions. You get residuals though, right? I do. But that's rare. Very rare. You think there should be a union for reality stars? Because that feels fair that like... I, I, I think it might happen one day. Yeah. Because you know? I think you got very lucky in I that did. Like, I think they're able to take advantage of a lot of people who have just the belief that they should be on TV and not the belief that they, like, deserve something for it. I mean, know? I had so much confidence as a young man. Yeah. It was, uh, if I was to go back in time, I would definitely pat myself on yeah. the back yeah. because <laughs> most people, you know, they don't have that confidence and they don't necessarily go for their dreams. I went for my dreams and I wholeheartedly believed that I was someone special and I made myself into a household name. Has there been fallout with the cast from the word that nobody could be paid higher than you? They probably didn't read it yet. That's from like the first season. Yeah. Uh, not the first season, the, the, the first franchise. And everybody kind of knows what everybody got paid at that particular time. Okay. Everybody knows that, you know, there were certain contracts that were mirrored and, and it was also tiered as well. Maybe at, at, at a particular time, relations were, you know, not the best, but that was because of my addiction, not anything yeah. else. Yeah. Well, how do you feel about having your children on TV? I mean, now, I mean, it's part of my story, you know, and it's part of our, our journey and my comeback journey and, and my story with my wife that we have, you know, two kids with one on the way. So I don't have any issues with that. Um, if my son 
or daughters, because I have another one on the way, if they came to me and said that they wanted to be on reality TV, I would definitely sit down with them and, and explain the positives and negatives, but probably support what they wanted to do. Uh, I mean, technically, right now, my son is verified on Instagram, and he's got like a half a million followers. Oh, my God. Ha half a million followers. Who's posting for him? A the account is run by mom and dad. Very beautiful. He's, he's making money off that thing? How far out are we from collabs? <laughs> I, I'll be honest with you. Um, he does make some money okay. um, on lives and, and things like that. But it's almost, at the end of the day, it's almost like a new age savings account. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Because when he gets old, he's two years old. And you put got, it just in his account for him kind of thing? Romeo has his own college fund. Mia Bella has their own college fund. Their college is, is paid for. Damn, from Instagram Lives? No, no, from Jersey Shore. Jersey, oh, okay. From Jersey Shore. Uh, I'm just saying the, the money that comes from Instagram yeah. Lives and, and collabs or whatever, $1,000 here, $1,000 there, it's, it's really just, you know, you just keep putting it away. Do you have concern about having them grow up on TV? Or is that something you guys are looking to do? Or is that, um, do you think there'll be a cutoff? There's kind of a movement of people looking at family vloggers, looking at like what happens if you've been like kind of publicized as a kid and you grow up and change your mind. Is, oh, no. Are these conversations you have with your wife at all? No, no. I don't think we have any issue with us displaying how wholesome our family is right now, you know? <laughs> and if they had a reality show that was pitched to me in a year or two or in a few years and it was called Something About the Situations or something. Oh, oh know, just, this if, is if, a this if something yeah, like this happened, if someone so, knocked on your yeah, door and somebody, had this idea. If somebody says, hey, we want to do a show called Something About the Situations and it was about a family <laughs> show about me and my, my family, I wouldn't object to it. I'm manifesting it for I you. I just manifested <laughs> it, yes. You know about manifestations, so. I know you can't speak for your wife, but what do you think the change in heart was between her, you know, 10, 15 years ago saying, like, we can't even be together if you're on a TV show to now being That's a cast a good member question. on a TV show. My wife, my wife has her own contract. Yeah, that's what I mean. Have its own contract, is now running an Instagram account for the kids. Like, what do you think the change of heart was there? I think at the time it was uh, an unknown reality show. Yeah. At the time. And we were boyfriend and girlfriend. And she didn't want to be that girlfriend that was on the phone while her boyfriend was away at a reality show doing God knows what and her crying on the other end. And having to answer to whatever your actions were on that yes. show. Like nine months ago. Yes. yes. So yeah. she was one million percent right because we wouldn't have lasted. It was the right person at the wrong time. Yeah. Um, so we decided not to get back together when I started TV. I went for my dreams and she went for her dreams. Her dreams were in the fashion world. So she went to the fashion world and I went to TV. The reason why I even went for my TV dreams was because she inspired me and we were broken up and I didn't want her to be the one to get away. So I'm like, well, look at me, hun. Yeah, I'm going for my dreams too. I think that once we reconnected and we started to rebuild our life, my life and her life became one. Yeah. And slowly but surely, she started to dip her toes in the sand when it became to reality TV. She did a, a Wii TV show called uh, Marriage Bootcamp. She started to feel more comfortable in front of the camera. Um, she wasn't the girlfriend anymore that was home watching her boyfriend on a reality show. Now we were engaged. So now we became one. She was part of it. She wasn't watching yeah, it. Yeah. And then eventually we got married on TV. We had kids on TV. So now it's like a whole thing. Now it's yeah. like our life is documented. Now our life's on reality TV. So it's only a next natural progression that she gets her own contract. She's got her own skincare line. She's got her own, you know, women's store. She's a bona fide reality TV star. That is the dream right there, but you got to work at it. Yeah. yeah. It would be easier said than done. 
at the end of the day, a lot of people will say, like, I could do a podcast, but no, you probably can't. They probably can't. No, no, you probably can't. We're I, the I, only ones that can. I, <laughs> I know how hard it is to do anything in entertainment, how hard it is to do interviews, how hard it is to do reality show, how hard it is to do movies, how hard it is to do podcasts. If you could do it, you would do it. If you could be a reality star, you would do it. If you wanted to, you would. Mike, Mr. Situation. Big Daddy Sitch. Yes, Big Daddy Sitch. <laughs> I don't feel comfortable calling you that. I'm going to take yes. that back. Yeah, I don't, I don't like that. <laughs> I don't, you're yes. somebody's father and husband. Yes. And I don't know you. Yes. Abs. I'm going to go with uh, the situation, the inspiration, Sitch. The indignation. The, the, the constipation. The blessification. Can you please, before you leave, give us nicknames just based on vibes? We've had some time to get to know each other. Just off-the-cuff energy. Um, Let's see. Um... Give him profiles. Let him see yes, all give, of you. Yes, yes, <laughs> No, no, no. Almost like in a dating profile. Give yeah. me like the, I'm I'm sassy and I like to go to eat and I like Italian and I love movies and I love to be wined and done. Give me like one of those okay, profiles. Okay, okay, my rundown. Okay, my name is Ashley. I live in Brooklyn. I'm obsessed with my dog. That's a big thing for me. I, I think I'm funny. She's a comedian. She's I'm a, a comedian. comedian. Okay. I have one for you. A nickname what for is me? It, what is it? What is it? What it's do you got? Ashley Sushi because she loves to eat sushi. Ashley Sushi? <laughs> That's kind of good though. Oh my God. <laughs> I guess I could be Ashley Sushi. But do you hear like the repetition of sounds? Ashley I mean, you're the sushi. final say, but consider it. Okay. Um, she loves Asian food. I have fake red hair. Oh my God. Asian ginger. <laughs> I don't think I can ask people to call me that. <laughs> that's a good one, though. Yo, I'm starting yo, with it. No, Asian ginger. Okay. Yes. Oh, my God. That's funny. Okay. Claire. Okay, Claire. Can I get your... Let me get a little pro, dating yeah. profile. Okay. I'm married, which is cringe to me because I'm a stand-up, and that's embarrassing to be happily in love. I live in Brooklyn. I'm from Hoboken. Uh, Any kids? No. Okay. No kids. No pets. You live in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. But you're from Jersey, mm -hmm. and you're married, and you're Claire. And that's my best friend. I feel like I'm loud. People have a problem with me. I tell I it like it is. Would you rather be a Brooklyn egg Claire or a Jersey egg Claire? I'd rather be Brooklyn, but I know I'm Jersey, and I can't, and that's my like. I like you being egg Claire. Uh, egg Claire. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You know what an egg Claire is? Yeah. But are you yeah. saying E Claire or egg Claire? Because I almost like egg. Claire. Egg, egg Claire. Claire. Yeah, egg Claire. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a play on words. It's, it's a pastry. Yeah. Yeah. Egg Claire. <laughs> but, but she's saying it with two G's. So are we Brooklyn? Nope. Are we Brooklyn egg Claire or Jersey egg Claire? I think Jersey egg. Claire. Yeah. Jersey, Jersey egg, egg Claire. Claire. Jersey egg Claire. Yeah, because I feel like I'm not really a pastry. I'm kind of an egg. <laughs> You're kind of an egg. <laughs> that was spot on. Yeah. yeah well, that was funny. thank you so much for chatting with us. Yeah. This has been a delight. It's true what you said about yourself in your book. Charming. Oh, thank you. Thank <laughs> yeah. you. It was a pleasure meeting and speaking with you. And to be honest with you, this has been the most insightful the deepest I've ever gone on a on a podcast. Well, that's, I was happy that you really said was, you yeah. like depth because I was like, I we've did. got some. We want to hear about your childhood. Yo, you, yo, you, you guys went deep, man. Y'all talking about therapy, and y'all went to like childhood. We love therapy. And, we won't go to it, but we love the yeah, idea. Yeah, you guys are good. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming. Thank yes, you. thank you guys so much. And that was our conversation with Michael Paul Sorrentino. I do feel like. New Jersey Egg Claire is like a way better fucking nickname than Asian Ginger. Asian Ginger. I don't know. Sound off on Twitter. Oh, my God. 
that cannot leave this room. Okay. <laughs> I am like, we can't say that. I think Ashley Sushi was kind of good. Here's my problem with all these food nicknames is that I'm not a food girl. That's not true. You are obsessed with like Thai food and sushi. Yeah, because I like do eat every day. Like I'm not like a restaurant girl. Do you know what I mean? Like when you're like, what food do you want? Okay, how about this? Okay, how about this? Ashley Hems and Haws. (laughs) Okay, that's actually way better. (laughs) I feel like you're always hemming and hawing. I am hemming and hawing. Ashley Hems and Haws. Do you know who I don't hem and haw at? The five star wormies. Oh my god, we also forgot to say um, how many Wormtinis. Well, zero, because he's sober, but I had a great chat with him. Yeah. And how fertile would you say this this worm soil is? I want to give it a solid four. There was a lot of story in here, and I was actually kind of shocked on review, like how much plot is in every page. Yeah. This is a real plot book, and so it's only 240 pages, but like going through it took a lot longer than I thought because every page has a pivotal moment. That being said, as you can see in the interview, he's not really willing to go deep. So I would love to meet him in 20 years and see if he can conquer emotion. I mean, I think that he's like a man who was raised in like an Italian brother's family. And so I think that that was going as deep as Poss. But I will say in terms of reality star books, this is like in the top percentage. Oh, for sure. This might be one of the best reality star books we've read. Yes. So that's huge for you, Mikey. Thanks, Mikey Abs. And thank you to our five-star reviewers. Thank you so much to our gorgeous, beautiful five-star reviewers. Thank you, A-J-Z-C-K. You are my favorite combination of letters that would never be a word, but might be on the Wordle, and I would be stumped by it. But I wouldn't even be mad because it's you. Thank you, Claire Pear Bear 00. I like you even better than the Claire that was here earlier just now. Thank you, Jenny Bear 52. Oh my God, we're building a bear in a workshop and I'm happy to live here. Thank you, Frantic Sloth. You know what? The way you so quietly move with determination is an inspiration to us all. A Sailor fan? No, I'm a you fan. Monica Lorraine? Bacon egg in that thing and we're cooking, baby. That is all for this week. 